0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to the Hub. All right, good everything, Nubians. Hello, hello, Dr. Carr. Hello, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm. I'm good. I'm, i I was just telling you. I was. You know. I was doing my morning walk and getting getting my my uh, brain juices flowing uh and i'm thinking about a lot of things thinking about will smith's movie uh mm. emancipation and you know and he answered the question we all had do we need another slavery movie and he was like told told willow no this is a freedom movie but you know i just that quick he's not canceled
1: or or is he i don't know We got to see what the box office does i saw did you see he was on uh what is it all the smoke podcast was he i didn't know he was on yeah. all that people yeah. go on that thing huh I saw about 20 minutes of him and the two brothers uh what is it stephen jackson and i forget the uh name.
0: uh matt matt barnes
1: Matt barnes right yeah yeah and, you know, it's never a surprise what this society promotes as journalists and and and, and uh, hey but hey i'm wondering why do you think he picked them to to break his silence
0: I'm sure, you know, there's, there's a there's a cy- cypher of celebrity, athlete, entertainers, they, they won't mm-hmm. listen to And you know that Matt Burns and Steven Jackson probably gonna have his, they're not gonna expose him. You know, it's, um one of the things about being a journalist I always, I was always very wary of is that I'm never your friend. Like, uh, I, yeah, some, yeah. even in writing books, they would, assumes cuz you know I'm there to gather information which is a little you know it's it's a weird position to be in but I'm very clear that I'm never your friend I am always there I'm the friend of the people who need information I am not your friend I'm trend- now if I'm writing a book with you I'm going to take care of you and protect you but even then there has to be a line and I watched several of my journalism colleagues cross that line many many times to some to very successful careers you know, because you, know, you, know, you can be, you know, make a lot of money doing that, crossing lines and, and come out <laughs> the other end being okay, you know? Um, yeah. And that's when I realized that journalism was probably never going to, maybe it never was. Maybe it never was what I thought it was. But I'm like, if you can cross a line and still have a career, is there a line? You know, what maybe I'm, you know, living this by these rules that don't exist. And I mm-hmm. see you know, how we can like get into this space where, well, nobody's following rules then I'm not going to follow rules. And then I had to stop myself. And I was like, just because no one else is following them, these are proper rules. Because what they're saying is you should never be compromised by the relationships that you're in to not deliver what people deserve to have, which is the truth. And if your relationships force you into a position where you're choosing your friendship over the truth, then you're no longer a journalist and you should step down. And I feel that way like judges and, you know, people should recuse themselves if they do not have the capacity to keep the boundaries very clear about what it is you're here to do. And either you're a journalist or you're a friend. I don't think you can be both, but you know, we're in strange times.
1: You're a a trained journalist. In addition to having a, a celebrity status, but you attain that status through your work. I mean, it's not like you were playing the sports you wrote about for years and then became known that way. And then they turned to other things. You were, you're a trained journalist. But that, that, that choice between the truth, between the way you want to live your life and the way that you kind of have been raised and the world. Yeah, that's a. Uh, ironically when Tana Coates takes the title of his book Between the World and Me from Richard Wright and here's what Richard one of the things Richard Wright was talking about between the world and me there's this thing between the world and me and how much of yourself are you going to project out in the world and how much of the, of the world are you going to let shape you
0: and and you know being with you and community for the last two plus years I'm also thinking is this quote-unquote righteousness? Is it indoctrinated righteousness? You know, because the world the world that we live in that tells us, you know, uh, how to live never lived that way, right? You know, <laughs> so do you right. know what I'm saying? Like, and, oh, and yes. rules before, those rules were to keep us in line, so am I perpetuating, like, like these are the things that I have to, like, every day examine. Am I perpetuating a myth of of righteousness that never existed, but only existed to keep us in line? And if that's the case, then what do I do with that? You know, do I do, you know what I'm saying?
1: I do. So, I do. so uh,
0: but I feel like, you know, those of us who have African um, drum beats in our spirits, we know what right is. And it's not even what your mama and your grandma put in you or your your daddy or whatever. It you, There is a due north. I think there is a due north in, in terms of how we treat one another. And I think love has to be, you know, the constant, you know, reminder of what we're here to do, love, community, growth, you know, you know, a tree by the fruit that it bears, all of those kinds of things. I was uh, reaching out to Dr. Mario Beatty, because I was like, is there a word in metanature for grace? You know, is there a word in metanature for, for grace, you know, and how do, how do we, how do we suss that out? How do we love people who are, don't know that they're you know, harmful, you know, what do we do with them? I know banishment is one thing, but if they don't know because of how we've been socialized and greed is good and it's confusing. I don't even know how people raise children today. It's like, what do you teach them? <laughs> Cause then they're like, but mommy, the uh, the president just, you know, or mommy, the uh, you know, it's like, "You know, you know uh, the man is on my TV or good morning America. So like cheating is wrong, but what's what's going on here? You know, like there's, there's too many questions we got to answer that don't fall in line with what is right and wrong which we know right mm. so,
1: i don't know no, I mean, what, what did uh did he have, did He offer a word
0: oh yeah he did hold on uh it, it 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 is in the in the in the framework of um of hold, hold on let me let me uh sorry, i got it I, and i should be memorizing these things no Here no, no
1: no no i mean there's so much i mean there's so many different I'm uh, yeah
0: that. he said uh he said grace uh had tapet
1: Hetepet, uh-huh, aha, because hetep is kind of like a version of hotep, peace, peace, com- it doesn't really translate as one word, I'm sure he gave you a long dispensation on it, because he, you know, Mario's a language guy, hetepet, that's interesting, you often hear people, because we know they, they didn't pronounce, but we don't know how they pronounce Medanetra, obviously it's not a language that is spoken, although people claim to speak it, and I don't have any pushback against that, because how would we know? If we don't, if there's no correct way to say Qatar, then we know then you know. but anyway, sometimes you hear people say hetepu when as a greeting. Um it's almost like saying peace or extending this sense of community. So I suppose grace in that broader sense, I'm extending to you a kind of wish for your for our common humanity. Um hotep, you'll hear people say, but he was very specific and said hetepet. Did he say how, what, what, how, he, how he translated translates? Yeah, we didn't
0: have a, a conversation. This was a text messages back and forth. And okay. I'm sure yeah, he,
1: could yeah, yeah. he could probably do a week on it. I'm sure he could because I know <laughs> Mario was here connected to everything else. Because those words uh, appear, I mean, in a society with roughly speaking three millennia of unbroken history, at, at the foundation of which, remember we talked about this in the uh, African States class uh, a couple of conversations ago, we talked about governance. When... Uh, The idea that at the core of This African Society was community So they weren't looking to set up Barriers between themselves and other people In the Nile, they were trying to join As Jacob Prez talks about, Tawi The two lands, the upper and lower Parts of the Nile Valley, but You know, at different Moments in their existence As a formal state So to speak They would pull different words Like the Middle Kingdom they had a concept, among the, 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 the throne name of the leaders of Karawa would be um, Wahimi Masu, repeat the birth. In other words, after a time of trouble, when they have a real time of disunity and invasions and that kind of thing, they would then say, if we're going to renew, we can't start today as just the first time. What happened the last time we had division? So they would say him, which is repeat mesu which is a word for which means to be born Messi or mesu by the way we know moses was an egyptian name that's the root of the word of the name moses they drew him out of the water birth mesu so even his name not hebrew so let's say less but uh because yeah. i want people to start <laughs> right exactly we say well you're okay you know what You'll get a grammar egyptian grammar uh get james allen you know come to narrative learn your meta we're not now going into the That's you know but I'm saying I have to say that Hetepet, I don't know off the top of my head. And I know he does. They, I'm sure there's a moment in their history where that became the favorite moment. And here we are in, in Western calendar year 2022, near the end of it. And we need Hetepet <laughs> more than ever. Was there a reason that that came in the front of your mind? To-
0: yeah, because, um, you know, I was actually talking on the radio about Will Smith, and I'm going to watch Emancipation, because I can stream it on, on Amazon, so I'm, I ain't got to go to the theaters and be breathed upon. But I was like, you know, you know, <laughs> he didn't slap me. Yeah, the
1: bar and the Negroes come sit in your seat. Yeah, anyway. I ain't got to, no, to, I don't extend have to. Don't to out. Or, <laughs> or <laughs> no, the word, one the Egyptian word for that might be, uh let me see, My would be balanced order, kind of a um they had a word that Europeans translate as chaos, but it's not coming to be at the moment. Anyway, so you ain't gotta worry about that. Yeah. None of it,
0: right? <laughs> Amazon Prime, which also has uh from Hebrews to Negroes, Negroes to Hebrews on it, still uh because they're not taking it down because it's free speech, anyway. Give um you money, get money, money, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I was like, you know, people are still uh outraged, and thank you, LeBron James, for you know, framing it, have that same energy. that's the, that's the message. Have that same energy. If you're not gonna have that same energy, then we, again, that due north. Does it apply to everybody? That outrage is, you know, are we all required to be outraged about it? And if you're outraged, we're supposed to be outraged. And if we're not outraged and something's wrong with us and you know, like who, and who sets that table? And again, you told us something that stuck with me and I've been beating this drum off Mike, that we're your parents. We came here first and I said to, um, a brother of mine I was talking with this week, I said, it is our responsibility to be good parents. No, I'm not taking advice from a child. I'm, the child is not gonna rule my life and tell me how to how to do, how to live, how to be. And as a result, I'm I'm your mama. You're gonna sit down and listen and right. because I know better and you don't have to agree with it, but you'll find out or you'll F around and find out. Those are two paths that you have. But I think it's our responsibility to step into that role since you said, I'm your dad. You know, you told us that. No we question. came first. So we set the framework for humanity. So why are we listening to these people, knuckle-dragging, cave-dwelling, black people for how to be when we should take our rightful position? I don't even know how they got into the government and rule and everything. Yes, uh, the bullet and dynamite are powerful things. Uh, but it's time now. It's time for us to, to uh, but first we have to reclaim who we are, to your right. point.
1: The birth. We don't remember.
0: We yeah. have to remember who we, we are. Remember. But those of us who remember, uh, you have a job.
1: <laughs> be a be a good parent. That's so true. You know, it's so funny you say that because in the context of even as we're having this conversation, and by the way, you all, you know, those of you who haven't, um, you're not in narrative where you haven't. If you are, you haven't taken advantage of this world class meta class that debate continues to teach new lessons every week. Um, there's nothing like it anywhere.
0: Oh my God. You can
1: get your money up and spend forty, fifty thousand dollars, and go to Harvard or go to UCLA and go take better nature. Or go to University of Chicago, and when you get in you're there,
0: cause you to oh, to because even if you go to Harvard and everything, you're not going to learn the glyphs. You're not physically no. because they don't know how to do. So it's no. it's not just learning the Jeez. the hieroglyphs. It's it's the spiritual journey of the glyphs drawing. Because I'm not artistic, but in sitting there, there's a meditative process and spiritual process of all of these symbols and coming together and what they mean, but it's in the drawing that you get imbued with this like power of what actually this stuff means. And I haven't experienced anything like it. And I I know that Harvard doesn't teach it that way they because can't. they don't know how to. No, and no. to have this man every Tuesday in, in Nubia have a class that can't be found any place, it's just uh so powerful. So, yes,
1: Mario if, if, if you say say something more about that, because I wasn't going to make that observation, and that really is the observation that needs to be made. What you just said, you would waste your money going somewhere else because not only would you not learn the language, the way they that the world tells you you should learn language instruction, the grammar, the vocabulary. It, this is superior to all of those places, and there isn't a place on the planet where they teach Egyptian language, where Mario Bailey's name isn't known among the finest of those people. But what you said is the thing itself. Language is the, of course, conduit kind of culture. And even if you took those, or wasted your money and took them to those places, you wouldn't ground it in what you just said. I, I hope you would. You know, as we would learn our first miniature natural lessons with Jake Carruthers and Ma'i um, e. Roosevelt Roberts, Javon Jones, I remember, as you say, when you, it, it doesn't matter whether you're artist, right, coming through your fingers, scratching those lines, trying to get those little birds, drawing those circles, trying The bright basket. Yeah. The, the hook just, right? Yes, yeah. that's coming to you, right? The, I remember the first thing I told Ma'i e. Roosevelt Roberts, who's an ancestor now, I said, brother, it's like they're talking to you. So when you said that, I, I hope I hope everyone who hasn't experienced that yet grasps what you just said. Because everyone who has tried, it's like, yeah, it isn't, it, isn't it? It's like they just, it's something energy enters you different. It's very different.
0: It's like this, right? You know, we've all taken history classes mm-hmm. where they're going to give you dates and, you know, memorize memorize these people and this happened here. and But you you connect the dots in a way that it makes it, part of our soul like oh okay and I'm connected to this history and these people and and these times and this is why it's relevant right so taking Meta Nature with Mario Beatty is similar to that because it's not just symbols on a wall there's a connection to your soul and your spirit and your your actual lineage you know on this earth and to be able to write thoughts like you said grace It's not just a word. There's a whole, whole etymology behind how we get to grace. And it's usually a story about community. And this is, you know, everything. So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm so grateful.
1: Oh, no, this is, this is, this is, is, I am too. I mean, right. That, that gratitude and um, that gratitude, it's a worldview language. As you say, I mean, it's, it's FET. It's FET is the name, is the word. It doesn't really translate into chaos. And here's the thing: language is worldview. The 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 Egyptians, and really, African people, generally, we start talking about languages. In fact, there's something so funny. I just got my hands on. Uh, this is the season when they dump in they backstop, and I was looking. I've been stalking this book for the oh, better huh? part of the years. Called. Um, let me. Uh, look, look. Let me do All three books are absurdly. Overpriced, so that nobody ran out and you know, it, I didn't pay what they. If you go look this up, you can be like, Oh my god, is your no, 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 I paid a frac, a small, tiny fraction at the price of you know, because I stalk books all over the world. But anyway, um, this book, The Palgrave Handbook of African Traditional Religions, very interesting. Um, this is a book, and the reason I have been stalking it earlier uh, this year, I was very blessed. As you say, I'm very fortunate and very grateful to have had a conversation with Toya and Falola. Who we've mentioned many times uh, the Yoruba professor, scholar, um, intellectual worker who is, a, is just a machine. He co-edited this with uh, another professor, um, Professor Adirigbe. And it is a compendium of ways of knowing from the continent. Paul Grave does these books. But, you know, it's like everything else that comes out of the current social structure now that there is African life to be profited from in the latest iteration of define Then, you know, you go out and publish books on the subjects that you're determined to continue to control. But in the long arc of what Jacob Carruthers used to always call the intellectual warfare we push back and sometimes we use these conduits to advance our interests. And so he, this book is divided into three parts. Part one, basic essential features of African traditional religion. Part two, contemporary interconnections, contents and discontents. And part three on pedagogy research and foundation scholars. Now, I mean, I got a whole section of texts around the questions of African spirituality and, and, and none of them are, could ever be a substitute for undergoing that process. And we talked about this when we were in, in the governance uh, section of our conversation in the Introduction to African States class, we, we're currently uh, deeply involved in in, in in Nubia. The whole question of how you enter a space, how you enter a communal space. You're born into a space or you are reborn into a space. If you weren't originally born there, you're planted in it, you are brought into that space to learn how people interact with each other and move through time and space collectively in a space. And then as you acquire some level of comfort, familiarity, and then felicity in in terms of being able to move through that space by the protocols to borrow from Angie Porter, as she works out this theory of Africana Legal Studies, you reach a point when you are invested with responsibility to maintain and extend the space. Maladumo so you know. So many of us know that we've heard uh, Larry Daniels' favor among favors among many others talk about you know his work, recent ancestor of water and the spirit. And so many others. I think I was introduced to a water and spirit by my good friend Ophia Zakia, Doctor Zakia, who's down in Mobile, as we talked about now with the descendants of the Clotilda. Um, now working with that foundation in Mobile. But Somae talks about this. And, and at that moment, when you're invested in responsibility, you don't just get the responsibility. There is a, there's a step in that process. It might be known as initiation. It might be known as initiation now in terms of how we use language, the English language, to just kind of describe these processes. And the process by which you move through initiation, you come out on the other side with an, an investment of, of expectation and responsibility you didn't have before you undertook that. And you might call that watershed moment or rite of passage. You know, we talked a lot about Kim Wadende uh Bunseki Fukuyau, Dr. Fukiao, the Congolese uh, scholar, now an ancestor who really taught so much after he came to the United States from Central Africa to to, to talk about this question of initiation rites of passage. And there's so many others. But if we just step back and look at this as a human process, we know that we all go through rites of passage, collective activities, common activities, good, bad, or indifferent. But when you're perpetuating a society, you're being invested with responsibility. In a very narrow sense, you can think about that when you go through school and go to graduation. It's a rite of passage. When they dress up kindergartners in caps and gowns and give them little rolled up pieces of paper, sometimes with nothing on it. When you then go to the seventh or eighth grade and they have a ceremony and they call that you know i went to my nephew's graduation yeah, isn't that graduation graduation is technically when you move from high school and you get that diploma from high school in the united states and then you go to college It's a college graduation all those are rites of passage because after you go through them you will then have an initiation into another community another the level of community in which in which you exist as one of a, of a of a group that is part of a larger group theoretically that has responsibilities now. Now the question is, what are those responsibilities? Why are you in school? In human societies that don't detach any of these professions, any of these acquisitions of knowledge or experience, don't detach those things from a larger group sensibility a larger community, there's a different type of expectation. In a society like the contemporary, in the contemporary world, particularly the settler colonies of the West, Western Hemisphere, so-called Western Hemisphere, including the one where, you know, Professor Hunter, you and I are sitting here in the United States, because this isn't a, a, a community of one culture, the expectations that people have are informed by the social structure that we find ourselves in. So the expectations are baked into that structure. Now, the part of our warfare, part of our intellectual warfare as African people in this particular settler country, settler country called United States, is to extend the expectations we have in our communities outward, pushing back against expectations that are attempted to be imposed on us so that we can be able to extend ourselves into the future. Hence, the language that I happily borrow. We happily borrow from Dr. Mariba Kelsey uh, down there in Atlanta who for many years on the faculty of Ohio State University, which is where we all, you know, myself, Dr. Beatty, Dr. Watkins met his him, his his wife, Mama Nyambi, his daughter, his daughters, Reba and Romani, his son, Madibo and the whole community in columbus ohio the african center for study of worship which continues in various iterations the african personal development shop taiwi family village uh, mama lona baba hatim so many others well bob mariba when he would be at the job at ohio state and as i said before you know they'd be in faculty meetings he'd sometimes be the only person of african descent in there and they come in after him or they argue with each other, and he would sit back he's just so cool so you know don't you know i'm your don't you know i'm your grandfather and it would just drive them crazy. But see, they not They wouldn't accept that. But they knew he believed in. Somewhere deep down, they know it too. You know, sometimes you can know a thing in your bones. I asked Dr. Jackson about epigenetics, but uh, Dr. Jackson. But at the same time, whether you accept it or not isn't the point. Isn't the point? The point is that we know it, and we will act accordingly. But we live in a society in the United States where there is no common community there's a lot of talk about common community but at key moments you see the thing revealed for what it is which is what a bunch of human beings pressed into what is eventually what is essentially a crime scene and we talked about that last week and we talk about it every time around this year we start talking about indigenous people people trying to grapple toward a present where they can live, and a future to be better than the present. But everybody is not of one accord. So when you're initiated into this society, when you go through rites of passage here, it often comes out as trauma. Again, I mean, and we'll put all this into context in a moment. For people of African descent, in a place like the United States of America, the community that we speak of is not America. As I was saying at my friend Nicole hannah Jones's launch of her Center for uh, Journalism and Democracy at Howard a couple of weeks ago, I said, when you see Black people in the United States of America waving the American flag, that's often cosplay, so you'll leave us alone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Yeah? Oh, yeah, America, man. In other words, get out of my face. Just leave me alone. I don't, you know. I can see a few people shifting in their chairs, but most of the Black people there, for the most part, just kind of laugh because we know. See, we know. It's very rare that you get a governance conversation in a social structure category. Because when it does, it shocks the hell out of people. I thought you loved me. (laughs) Yeah, it's like your pets that you spay and neuter and give slave names and stuff like that, but you always lock the front door. Why? Because somehow Barfy is going to leave your house if you leave the door. open. Because Barfy's friends, the Maroons, they over there across the street in the bushes. You call them the wild dogs. Barfy's a house dog. At least you thought Barfy was. You don't even know Barfy's name. Barfy's name is really... (laughs) But see, you can't speak, dog. So anyway, but you got to convince you know, yourself that, you know, Barfy loves you. But that why do you lock the door if Barfy loves you? Well, in the United States, when you start talking about a common culture, no, you got to stand up and salute the flag. There's a cosplay. But when you look past the cosplay, I was, it was funny. I don't know. You probably know him. I've only met him once. Good brother, Florida A&M alum, comedian, um, Roy Wood. I know you know where You probably talked to him many times, haven't you? He's the homie, Roy. Roy oh, is what? Oh, oh. Roy.
0: Roy <laughs> I just interviewed him again last week because he just yeah. produced a documentary with C.J. Hunt, who's his fellow compadre on the Daily Show. He comes in with the Marcus Garvey drawing on that I sent him, <laughs> and um, and we were talking. He's like talking about Senyata because Senyatta, his, you know, yes. I was like this. These degrees of separation, because I met Senyata through you. Yeah, and Roy being yeah. D.C., no
1: question. <laughs> and Roy,
0: Roy and I go back, and wow. then he brought up Senyata, and I was like, this, I think there's a, co- a gathering uh happening. <laughs> That's what it is. And so, yes, Roy Roy is special. He's everything. He loves us, oh, and goodness. he's about this life. So uh yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. But what were you
1: going to say about no, him? No, 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 no. I'm just saying I was grading some papers, last week, and I came across, I hadn't seen it, father figure, I guess his new stand-up? Yes. Hilarious. That brother is hilarious. In fact, the closest I ever came to being memed, he came here for the Daily Show to do a thing when they had the anniversary of the Million Man March, and uh, they he, he interviewed me, so we're standing in front of the United States Capitol, and we're talking about, you know, I'm talking about how this isn't really a nation. You know, people say, you know, you asked me the first five words of the uh, national anthem, and I don't say, oh, say, can you see? I say, lift every voice and sing. And he said, oh, that's the Black National Anthem? Roy Wood said, I thought it was Summertime by Willis. <laughs> 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 so I make this face like, okay, <laughs> but, anyway, but I mean, it was hilarious with anyway, me, but he said something in this stand-up. I'm grading papers, I'm looking over, I can't really grade and watch something like that at the same time, so I'm really checking citations. I'll go back and read for sub content. And then, and then um, he said, Black people, you ask them about we ain't talking about America. We don't talk about America. We talk about which city can you go to and have the most fun? And everybody started laughing. This is a governance articulation. People will be shocked. Black people don't be thinking about that flag. Or, yeah, um, we're Americans. No, they think about you go to Atlanta for this. You go to Miami for this. <laughs> do that. That. <laughs> it was, it was dead on. And it's really it was a brilliant observation. You know, that's what comedians do. Black comedians, why are always talking about race? They're really not talking about race. What they're giving you, if you listen, is a little glimpse into the governance formation. What they're really giving you a little glimpse into is what we think when y'all ain't around. And there are moments when you engage in a critique of the social structure, they become uncomfortable And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, Chris Rock, when he made the movie Top Five, I mentioned this before. When, you know, the whole at the at the crux of that movie with he, uh, you know, as his his character, which runs around in a Kanye West kind of bear costume in his movies. In other words, a minstrel, a clown, a buffoon. Then he wants to make a, a movie about a rebellion of enslaved people. And the movie falls flat on his face. he wants to be taken as a serious actor. well, you know the premise of that top five movie as he and Rosario Daw- Dawson go because Rosario Dawson plays this journalist who is engaged in her own form of cosplay gendered cosplay in disguise in in, in, in in professional disguise interviewing him you see chris Rock the Chris Rock character at the at the at the crossroads of a dilemma. How much, quote unquote, truth do I expose this audience that has been cultivated by watching me as a minstrel? How art mirrors life. But at any rate, <laughs> the, 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 you know, there are comedians who will then be critics of race, racial <laughs> critics. And people mistake those jokes for, as Earthquake, the other comedian would say, in talking about intra- African intra-black governance structure conversations. Everybody's <laughs> laughing. He said, "These ain't jokes." <laughs> In other words, <laughs> you gotta understand. Black people have a different conversation going on when it's just us. And comedians stand sometimes at that border and we said this between governance and social structure. And when you hear that articulation, you should distinguish between the articulations that are critiquing the social structure and the ones where they're exposing you to how we think a little bit. So when 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 Roy said that. He said, black people don't be thinking about America. We're thinking about where can you go, which city can you go to to have the most fun? In other words, our relationships are local. And in some ways, what it reveals is that all human relationships are local. They start with the people closest to you and expand out. Now, depending on the social structure you're in, that home, that community, that immediate conversation, okay, can expand outward. So let's say, for example, you're in a Scandinavian country. Or, you know, let's say you're in Sweden, for example, or, or the Netherlands or Denmark. Well, the language, the rituals, the rites of passage and initiation will be strongly familiar between your household, your community, and the concept of the country itself. Because there's a lot of what you know, anthropologists, sociologists, we might call homogeneity. I was watching a conversation that the great African scholar uh, Oyuwanke Oyewumi was having. And she, uh, who, of course, her most probably well-known text, something that Dr. Vlity Watkins Beatty teaches a lot, uh, the book, The Invention of Women, where she says these Western concepts of gender get superimposed on people of African descent. And that's when the fun starts. But she was having a conversation. She was in a conversation with a South African sister and she they were talking about this pushback against these Western attempts to define who African people are. She said, when I came to the United States from Nigeria, and she's Yoruba, when I came to the United States from Nigeria to study, to go to school, uh, I was in, she's in the University of California system. She said, I was in anthropology. I'm sorry. She said, I was in sociology. This is the point. And she said, these white professors were like, they would ask me what I was studying, and I would tell them, and she they, she said, they would say, well, you should be in anthropology. And she said, you see, in this system, in this Western system, these Europeans would say, if you're studying your own community, that's sociology. If you're studying other people's community, that's anthropology. So she would say, well, by that definition, I'm a sociologist. Why? Because I'm studying my community. She's studying African people generally Yoruba people in particular her particular strain of Yoruba where she's very granular in terms of her approach. She's looking at how gender operates. You know she's edited a book called What Gender Is Motherhood. In other words, I'm going to explode these Western concepts, but I'm not doing it as a critique of the West. I'm doing it because I want to understand my society better through these disciplinary lenses you've given us and whatever if I can use them at all. And she said, Ah, this she understood by anthropology. You don't. You, What you're really saying is other means other than you. Because I am from this community, so that would make me a sociologist by your definitions, but you want me to be an anthropology because when you think Africa, when you think African people, you're thinking other. Now, if you take that into a U.S. context, where does that leave the African born in the United States? Who are we to each other? I'm not a sociologist. I'm an anthropologist. I'm not a historian. I, in, in, in the Western Academy, the Western academic framing, my training, my approach, my work, my community is literally Africana studies. Africa, when and wherever you find it, overflowing the boundaries of these artificial nation states, these lines that have been drawn over the last several hundred years. It becomes very difficult for people to understand. So, well, so you're a historian. No, I told you what I am. No, you you are you a philosophy? I mean, are you in you no? Know, but you studied law, so that you're a you know. no. Yeah, I have I have command of tools, language, vocabulary, process, methodologies to even come in and out of any of those conversations. But let me be very clear about this. My my home is Africana in this social structure context you put in. People just rejected it, at which point you just evoke Marie and Kelsey and say, yeah, well, don't you know I'm your grandfather? <laughs> you don't know. Well, I'm going to behave that way because I am. In other words, I'm not going to respect these boundaries. So let me tie some of this together as we're thinking about this in the context. Whether it be a comedian giving you a glimpse into how people of African descent are interacting with each other, whether it be um, a, a film where the star of that movie, Will Smith, Emancipation, uh, coming out, is playing a brother. Um, I think maybe in the movie, in the movie, his name is Peter, but Whipped Peter was one of the nicknames he was given. in In, in real life, in 1863, a brother who received the name Gordon Smith, maybe his last name. 1863, he escapes from a plantation in Louisiana, makes his way through uh, about 40 miles in a week and a half to the front lines of the Union Army, the invading Union Army in Louisiana and is is employed in service as a scout and these kind of things re recaptured by the confederates and escapes again and in the process of being captured this brother uh, was photographed photography in its kind of infancy there in the 1860s 1840s 50s 60s daguerreotype and so forth but then so he's photographed because among other things his back is a map of scars this is the famous photograph that you see in most compendium of african people in the united states during enslavement your brother with his back to the camera and you just see these welts that have risen up over his back over the years from having been whipped and beaten mercilessly whipped bloody and then they, the, the the scars healed then whipped bloody again and more scars healed till his back is basically a a raised map a road map of violence And it's a very famous photograph. Well, this is the brother that Will Smith is playing. A spectacle of torture. This is the legacy of African people. And I too will go, you know, I I think the the theatrical release was the second. I think it was this weekend. Maybe it was yesterday. And I know it's playing a couple of places in Washington, in D.C. Maybe I'll go there. Or maybe, like you, I'll just wait. I think it's Apple TV. I don't know if it's... uh,
0: you know what? It is Apple. It is it's, Apple. I just I don't, want, mean, I don't trust just my want opportunity. I wanted opportunity to shade Amazon while we were at it. But yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> you went ahead and
1: my him. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. I mean, you know, it's interesting because again, we're seeing this. Okay, so let me draw the parallel and not through the slap, but through the real slap between Chris Rock and Will Smith. In Top 5, Chris Rock plays a character who is not taken seriously, but is hugely famous for his ability to entertain through spectacle, who we are to other people, who then wants to be taken serious by making a movie about a whole rebellion of enslaved Africans that nobody goes to see. That's in the movie. And in real life, Will Smith, who has made a career out of first being not taken seriously, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air rapper, this kind of thing, and then transitions into these more meaty roles, but primarily being non-offensive, whether it be lightweight uh, venues like Hancock, or imaginary America expanded into humanity superimpositions of American settler colonialism on the world versus the aliens like Independence Day. Today is our Independence Day. <laughs> yeah, y'all just keep on pushing the settler colonialism. Now the whole world is with you, right? The Americans, they figured it out. And so, you know, Will Smith has, has integrated himself even in theoretically controversial moments, like with Gene Hackman, the enemy of the state, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, uh, in iRobot. You know, I mean, the whole idea that somehow this kind of or um, I am legend. I mean, you know, both of those last two based on short stories that predate them by decades. The whole idea that Will Smith is every man, you know, that's that's usually language in the so-called humanities for white. Uh, and this is from somebody, who, by the way, who played every man as an undergraduate at Tennessee State. We did every man. Every man, of course, is the name of a play from medieval England. where you see every man. Comes in, but every man really means this is the normative white way of being that's kind of superimposed on everybody. So they will Smith is every man till he slapped Chris Rock in the mouth. At which point, oh, are we safe? Why? Because see, that's a governance moment, right, wrong, wherever we come down on it. And we know that we really don't have those conversations in mixed company. The way black people feel about that slap, you probably, if you are not in community with African people, you didn't really get a full kind of uh, rehearsal of the range of opinion about that. And uh, as we were saying before, you know, Will Smith chose to go into All the Smoke podcast to talk about uh, the new film, basically. And I'm sure and they had must have arranged before he went on, if you watch the interview, it was only a split second where he talked about what happened at the uh, Academy Awards. But in that moment, you hear Brother Jackson, who, of course, broke the, what in drama they would call uh, the third wall between the stage and the audience, when he, uh, coming up after his friend, I guess I, don't, he, he, I guess he was Ron Artest at that time, met a world piece, or, you know, went up in the stands because you ain't gonna just throw no ice in beer on me while I'm laying here trying to calm myself down. So, Steven Jackson was like, yeah, I understand. I understand. I mean, it's your woman. You Hold on, bro. You're going off script. Well, Smith can't co-sign that. Even if he think that he can't co-sign it. Well, it's not a governance conversation. All the smoke. Y'all done going from a podcast to being heavily subsidized by Showtime, meaning Vodacom, meaning this broader world. So, you can't just be having no governance and you ain't no comedian. So, you can't finish that punchline with these ain't jokes and everybody laugh. No, you ain't not a comedian. you want to be taken as a journalists of some form but anyway but the whole point is that in that conversation there's a there's a glimpse where you see there's a full range of opinion now if you're in a social structure formation you're not going to hear what african people think about that at least not african people who have a whole lot of visibility so you know lebron james is being celebrated in part because his pushback against the media in terms of Jerry Jones' racist behavior when he was 14 years old. And I absolutely understand the observation. He was young. He was 14. And my, you know, he maybe he didn't know what he was doing. You got to take him at his word. And my thing is, hey, no problem. And my response isn't, well, Emmett Till was 14. And my response isn't, Tamir Rice was younger than that. My, my response isn't any of that. My response is, okay, let's say he was 14. How old is he now? because he defended the 14-year-old as an old man. So you saying that too? I mean, it's a it's a hell of a thing when you stand between the ass-whooping and your master and say, master, I'll take it. Because at least, you know, for Brother Gordon, Brother Gordon Smith, them welts on his back were from him bucking. Your welts are from being bu- broken. <laughs> like You gonna stand in front of this man and take this ass whipping? Okay, between the 14-year-old and the old man is you. Defending the 14-year-old and he ain't even doing he defending the 14-year-old too that's why you see all the memes with Stephen from Django Unchained for these folks who were, you know Stephen being the character in Django Unchained but we'll stand there and defend him but I'm saying all that to say that in all of these contexts you have this constant tension between the way the world perceives people of African descent and the way that people of African descent perceive each other. And as the World Cup continues to unfold in Qatar, and you see the captain of the U.S. football team, U.S. national football team, a man with an African parent who was raised by Europeans in the United States of America, who when challenged by the foreign press, particularly the Iran, uh, journalists about any comment on the united states terrible record including black lives matter who are you to come over here and criticize in this country and we're not as john henry clark would often say in some stories there ain't no good guys so this ain't about that but the response is of course to rally around the flag and people say well they're very proud of him he's receiving a lot of accolades in the white stream commercial media and of course he would for saying that. A lot more mixed opinion in circles of people of African descent, and that mixed opinion rarely sees the light of day in the social structure. But there are moments when the things get very close together, and may begin to converge. And at that moment, society is shocked—white society, that is—shocked to find out that a lot of black people, not all black people, there's no lot, uh, there's no anything is all that black people are shocked. I mean the social structure rather is shocked. Black there are black people who feel this way. Yeah. A lot of black people. And we're not gonna come for that, brother. Why? Because we know that two things. We know even if he thinks different, he ain't gonna say it. And that's number two. Number one, why would you expect him to think different? Yeah, he came out of his mother's womb and one of his parents is black, but he wasn't raised by a black folk, he wasn't raised in the black community. He definitely experienced being black because he black. By your definition, but in terms of investiture of expectation, ex- vestiture of responsibility, rites of passage, initiation, none of that is coming in his life from communities of African descent. So it's not surprising at all that he would give that answer. He may believe that with his whole heart, but we're not going to respond to you because we are clear about where he is when he's being asked that question. So if you want to have a a, a different kind of conversation, you're probably going to have to go around a community, a group of people who are just of African descent, And then you'll see that opinion expressed and the exact opposite of that opinion expressed, and just about everything in between. But you'll be shocked by the fact that that happens. And you're shocked at the fact that that happens because just like those professors that told, oh you want it, or you want me, if you're studying yourself, that's an African self. So therefore you must be an anthropologist because we consider anthropology the study of you. And even when you studying in you, that's still foreign, well, We have a definition for you of you that isn't us, and we will put that on you your whole life. And your mistake will be if you accept our definition as if it's yours and begin to look at yourself that way. That's why we have to have Africana studies to deaden the noise and step out of that social structure long enough to begin to think with each other in our full complexity. As Wade Nobles would say, power is the ability to define reality and have other people accept your definition as if it were their definition. Well, that's what we are faced with. So on this first few days of December in the calendar year, and of course, after finishing this month, we will then go to January and resume our Roman named uh, months after Julius and Augustus Caesar put their name in the calendar and made the 10th month, the 12th putting July and August in, and now DESE 10 is the 12th. Now that we are in the first few days of that, we can look at some coordinates on this Saturday that help us kind of stimulate ourselves to think about our obligations to each other, our obligations to each other as people of African descent, our obligations to the world beyond. And thinking about that in the context of, you know, for example, here in the United States, you know, in the state of Georgia, a state where the film Emancipation was scheduled. I think Antoine Foucault is the director, right? I think he's the director. Um, it's funny how Europeans find a story that they become fascinated by. Another reason why I wanted to get this handbook, because the Palgrave Handbook of African Traditional Religion is written by Africans, not just continental Africans, diasporic Africans, Africans all over the world. There are 46 chapters in here, 631 pages, 630 pages, not including the index. By the time you get through with the index and the footnotes, it goes longer than that. But these are almost exclusively people of African descent, writing about Africana ways of knowing, what might be called tradition and religion, right? Writing about, thinking about everything from um, sustainable, social and economic dynamics to conflict resolution to concepts of the circle of life, burial rites, afterlife, reincarnation, leadership, women, societies of secrets, oral and non-oral knowledges, metaphysical concepts, concepts of worship, and many other topics. This to reinforce the many various other um, things that have been written and spoken on the subject. And as I said earlier, and I didn't finish this thought, so let me tie this up now. None of that scholarship, none of these books, none of these texts are a substitute for the literal practice. So many folk who are initiated in Africana spiritual traditions, and I would include in the broader valence of Africana spiritual traditions, not just the ones that we automatically identify as quote unquote African, whether it be uh, Vodun, whether it be Ifa, whether it be the Akan traditions, uh, any of those labels, and it really that's all they are labels. I'm looking at the extensions of Africana ways of knowing and practice that come into the Africanization of everything from quote unquote the major so called Western traditions, although none of them were born in Europe. And that, of course, would be Judaism, is uh, Christianity, and Islam, the African versions of that. So I would ex- extend that circle to include Santeria, Caromble, uh, the holiness. The Shango Baptists in in Trinidad and Tobago, if you've got a practice among African people that shows the extension of Africana ways of knowing, then I would include that in the constellation of spiritual practices of ways of knowing um, that could be called Africana. Spiritual practices, I would include those in there and there are a lot of people who wouldn't and I absolutely understand that and again That's why we have our conversations. That's why we're having this class We're having now as we bring ourselves we all as you say Prof, bring our brick but in that process on this first weekend of December We think about the fact that You know we are engaged in a perpetual act of we formation and in that we formation, that community formation, there is no natural we that we can't, that we must not tend to and sustain. We are constantly asking ourselves, who are we? Who are we to each other? How do we move through the world collectively? What are our responsibilities? How do we learn those responsibilities? Because we know education, a major component of education is, is socialization. What are our responsibilities? So here in the United States in the state of Georgia, you know, there's an election going on, millions of people have already voted early voting, even as the white nationals of Georgia tried desperately to kick the teeth out of last weekend for early voting. And one of the reasons I'm sure they tried and failed to do that was that a lot of young people were at home for the holiday break here in the United States. And I have a lot of students at Howard who were from Georgia who voted last weekend and then got on the bus, got on the plane, drove back to, rode back to D.C. Oh! hmm yeah see that Saturday was very important that's was very important why because that was the day that they stayed at home and then one of the things they did was vote then they came on back to school and that happened all over the United States the Georgia students you know were at home many of them and they voted and now of course Georgia is also a state where when they passed those voting laws to restrict people from participating in the franchise which is not a revolutionary act and is a revolutionary act at the same time. There's no label called revolutionary and these are the only things that fit as revolutionary. It's a tool and a strategy, as we said many times in the larger uh, process. But even as in the state of Georgia, the white nationalist party attempted to kick the teeth out of so many things, can't give water to people in line, you know, you restrict the number of drop boxes, you uh, make the shortened, you, you cut in half the number of voting days, which is why you have those long lines. It creates a funnel effect. Because now you haven't stretched it out over a longer period. You've shortened the period, which means people got to stand there. And now you go, now you got an hour and a half wait, two-hour wait, three-hour wait, four-hour wait. People not getting out of line. Meanwhile, the hillbilly horde is off in Podunk, Georgia, where there are four living beings, three of them being dogs and one person who lives in town, who then walk to their well-appointed uh, voting place. And there's no line at all. They stick their little dagger in our common humanity and going home to resume watching Fox News. That's all by design. But when they passed those laws, something interesting happened, even as it relates to this film, Emancipation is coming out. Fuqua, the producers, Will Smith, you know, they decided that they would pull those elements of the movie they were going to shoot in Georgia. They would pull Georgia from the shooting schedule. Now, that's taking money out of the mouths of the folk that work at Tyler Perry Studios, the black folk who drive the cars, who cater the meals, the black folk who you know, do all the various Sunday things that make up movie making, which is why you got to have this multimillion dollar budget. Will Smith is reported to have made $35 million from this movie. Uh, and then, of course, that's just his salary. I mean, but there are people who work at minimum wage who work and then they didn't have this shoot to schedule. Well, the question becomes, what do you do in a governance formation? There's going to be a real debate about that because on the one hand, I mean, they say on the one hand, on the other hand, For one example, you have Ryan Coogler now who shoot part of Wakanda forever in Georgia. Remember Ryan Coogler got accosted by the police, most of whom look like him of African descent because somebody in the bank, including people who look like him, called the police on him because he went out there, he went to the bank and withdrew some money, like money, money, as we were saying Ebonics, which I'll talk about in a minute in the context of this question of language and who we are. But you know, he gets accosted, but he's only in Georgia because he's working because the movie that everybody going out to see now kind of forever part of it was shot there. And on the you know, in the other dimension, you have Fuqua and Smith and them who say, Yeah, we're pulling emancipation from Georgia because of these white nationalists who are trying to destroy our ability to use this one tool in our broader liberation struggle as a as a tool of self-defense and harm reduction, voting. And here we are on a weekend where yesterday was the last day to early vote and millions of people have voted anyway. As Frank Smith, uh, the SNCC veteran who runs the United States Civil War Museum, Black Civil War, African-American Civil War Museum here in D.C., as his brother told him, because Frank is from down there, Frank from Georgia, he said, now you stay up there, you handle your business up there. We know we've been dealing with these white people a long time in Georgia. We're going to handle that. So should emancipation have pulled Georgia from its shooting schedule? Only to go to where the real life Gordon escaped Louisiana, which ain't no better to shoot? Well, that's a debate. That's a governance debate, particularly when you look at the past election cycles, past couple of election cycles, and see that the participation of people of African descent who are registered and can vote in the United States federal elections and midterm elections and presidential cycles elections actually decreased this last election, 2022. The numbers decreased of black voters in North Carolina, in Georgia, and in Louisiana. So even with the new restrictions in place, you would think people might meet the challenge and say, I'm gonna vote anyway. Well, the numbers went down. Did they go down because of apathy? Did they go down because of voter suppression? Both those elements and more. But the fact of the matter is that there is no one way of thinking about we, but in this process of we making that leads us to these debates, to these conversations commingled with social structure forces who have their own agenda, which is absolutely not our agenda. We're going to come to that, too. We're here on this first weekend of December and reminded that we have many tools to think together, to build we together, to construct ways of moving through the world in time and space and engaging these social structures we find ourselves in together. Because doing it together enhances our capacity to protect ourselves, to reduce harm to ourselves, more importantly to build new worlds for ourselves, and in building new worlds for ourselves, helping in some ways create a wahemi mesu, a repetition of the birth, a repetition of the essential forms of being being together, many of whom which are being discussed in this book, as in many others, the spiritual tradition book to enhance our our experience as human beings and also to help us live more beautifully in in the world, in, in the place that we inhabit, in the reality we are aware of. All these things fit together. So here we are in this first weekend of December. We've been in this formation week after week. The blessing of having this metronome. We've been in this session week after week at the height of a pandemic in the endemic phase of a pandemic in a core conversation, which has now taken deep root, manifest itself in a true maroon space like narrative in Nubia, where we continue to build and grow. And no matter what the social structure does, Twitter, is it collapsing? Is it not collapsing? Oh, social media is collapsing. People getting counted. Canceled, not counting. None of that. We we are here. We are with each other. And for two Decembers now, preceding this one, we, around this cluster of days, December 1st, 2nd, 3rd, have taken moments in our collective experience to note For example, John Brown, who was executed 1859, December the 2nd, and of course, John Brown here in the United States um, attempting to convene a we that transcended even race. He wasn't attempting to overthrow the United States government. He was he was he was attempting, as we talked about extensively, you can go back in the narrative archives and we won't do it today. I'm just evoking it to give us a remind us of the momentum of memory of how we're building. That John Brown was not trying to overthrow the government as much as he was saying, we're going to create free space. We're going to do it collectively. We're going to go into the mountains and from there we'll continue to recruit people into those maroon spaces that looks very much like the maroons of the caribbean and of latin america it looks like the maroons of the great dismal swamp which is why no doubt martin delaney martin robeson delaney with his serialized novel blake writes about africans escaping into these spaces Martin Delaney, who, as we talked about extensively, writes uh, Frank Rollin, Francis Rollin in her biography of Delaney and Delaney himself, you know, this is Larry Crow. by the way, uh, we were talking earlier this week, Larry may be here now. Um, he and Mama Olabisi were in Ohio, in Wilberforce, Ohio, at the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center. And uh, they, they nailed, among other things, nailed down the date for the Martin Delaney uh, ceremony that we have memorial day weekend in ohio he's been doing that and the folk out of chicago and dayton and the whole midwest have been doing that for many years so you know our lips to god is god's ears or as the muslims would say inshallah we'll be there in memorial day weekend and we'll be doing in class from there from the national museum of afro-american history and culture uh in wilberforce so as but as well as larry has spoken about and written about and and so many others anderson thompson harold pates conrad warrell jacob Carruthers, so many others ife Carruthers, rosetta cash you know yvonne jones um just thinking about noel gardner who by the way sent me this beautiful shirt i, I always rock the uh, this is the uh Afri- the african uh festival of the arts in chicago this is the i think the 29th annual shirt you know noel, I, noel works that festival but as all those africans in the Midwest have done for many years Bing Davis I started naming them I'll forget somebody or I won't name somebody but uh we'll be there Memorial Day weekend for the Martin Delaney 2023 that is but it's Martin Delaney who knew John Brown who corresponded with John Brown who met with John Brown in Canada when they formed uh, among other things a kind of a small convention to draft a new constitution for a new a new country Brown of course coming back to the United States and Losing his life executed on December the 2nd night uh, 1859 uh, Harriet Tubman, who was supposed to be with John Brown. I'm looking. I don't know if I have it somewhere near me. Um, no, I don't think I do. My man Clarence Luzane, my brother Clarence Luzane. Who, well, maybe it's here. If it is, I'll pull it out. If it's not, I'll just have to give you the title without being able to show you the book. No, it's not in there. Oh, that's too bad. Uh Clarence Lusane, who wrote a book called $20 and Change. $20 and Change, which is a book on Harriet Tubman and what she means. Uh, Clarence is my colleague at Howard University in the political science department. But at any rate, Tubman and Brown were friends. And he writes about that relationship. Harriet Tubman, very spiritual person. But you know, that happened December the, Second, 1859, and we've talked about that extensively tomorrow. Some of y'all be watching that uh, tomorrow, which we mean today for you on, of course, December the 4th, 1969, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, 21 and 22 years old, respectively, assassinated by Chicago patrollers in a coordinated effort between the federal government, the state of Illinois, and the city of Chicago, murderers. Murdered those brothers, and of course, uh, shout out to Mom um, and Jerry, his partner, their son Fred Hampton Jr., Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., still on the wall, still struggling. You know, this is the weekend where we we pause to remember that, and there, there's so many other things that we could talk about. But in that context of these points of entry for us to think about who we are, how we we, how we then use that we to expand and and fight, whether it be Africans in the United States in an election cycle for the united states senate that might give the democratic party one more vote in the federal legislature and in the senate side and that's not because black people love the democratic party so much using it as a battery battering ram for harm reduction because one more seat uh may mean that people might get their insulin price lowered but the white nationalists are going to fight because there are other white nationalists like the self labeled white christian nationalist marjorie taylor green who will be in the majority in the house of representatives so look out for some real clan stuff over the next two years in in, in the house of representatives but that extra seat will mean easier judicial appointments it takes joe manchin out of play the soft white national out of west virginia who continues to work against the interests of the people who vote for him uh, you saw the amtrak if you're living in the united states not amtrak the railroads writ large the railroad unions fighting with the owners of the railroads to try to get a better deal for the women and men who work the railroads in this country. So it isn't just passenger railroads. It's the people who make sure that there is food in the grocery stores, that you can order something on these convenient uh, cyber platforms and it's delivered to your door. You know, stuff comes on trains. If it's shipped into a port in the Bay Area or a port in New York and Newark area, it gets on a train. Those aren't the trains you ride. Those are the trains that keep everything moving and lifeblood between that and the trucks. And those people have unions and those unions have negotiated with these owners for a little bit of room to operate and the federal government intervened because it's Christmas time and everybody gonna spend all their damn money. Black Friday and Cyber Monday and so forth and so on. And of course, I hope some of you all gave narrative as a gift in this giving season, the season of Kwanzaa. I think there's some other rituals that take place during this season. But anyway, the first one that comes to mind in an act of self-determination, Chakalia, but in that process, they want the trains to run. So the Biden administration been negotiating, pushing on the, pushing on these unions, pushing on these owners behind the scenes. And then they finally got to the point where they're like, y'all gonna strike? Oh, hell no. Nah. You got to come to work. You got to come to work. So they intervened. Again, the illusion somehow that power can't do whatever the hell it wants to do unless somebody stops it. Who gonna check them, boo? They intervened. Because they have that ability legally, and they said you have to settle now. You gotta accept the contract that the unions negotiated with the owners. But there was one piece, not perfect, not all, but something that the unions wanted. That their owners was like, "We ain't giving y'all that." And that was simply one week, seven days, one week of paid leave for the workers who worked the railroads in all the capacities, in order to get the major bill, except in the negotiated contract, passed into the desk of the President of the United States. The union had to accept that the demand for seven days of paid leave be introduced as a bill, as a separate piece of legislation. Well, it passed the House of Representatives, the United States House. Where the Democrats voted for it and the White Nationalists voted against it. I'm talking about the open white nationalists, the white nationalists and Democratic Party too. See Joe Manchin. Because when it came to the Senate side, it failed. 52. 52, 47, mean, because there were some people who didn't vote at all. Look at that, cowards. Or oh, for whatever reason, let me not say that because I'm not going to attribute that because I haven't researched to find out sometimes. People sick, they can't travel, whatever. You can't proxy vote, so you know. But among those who voted no, among those who voted yes. With some avowed white nationalists like young Josh Hawley out of Missouri, Rafael Cruz out of Texas, little Marco Rubio out of Florida, voted yes. Give them the leave. On the no side, the whole white nationalist party, except about six white nationalists who broke ranks and Joe Manchin. Well, that fifty-first seat will render Manchin. Much less effective in his soft white nationalism destruction. And I'm sure his response would be, I don't give a damn. his, Or, or I don't give a damn. Or, um, I don't give a damn. Because I know he picks up after himself on his yacht, this part down here in, in the harbor. Uh, in DC. Um, I'm sure there's nobody who cleans that yacht for him. And, you know, I'm sure he does all his cooking in because he, you know, he's, he was born a coal miner. So, uh, you know, I know he does it all for himself. Not, but I mean, I'm sure his response would be, I don't give a damn. And then maybe somewhere 50th or hundredth or a thousandth down the line, his response would be, well, if I were to vote for that, then the people would vote me out in West Virginia. These the same damn poor people who used to swear by the union in West Virginia. And who knows? And maybe if Raphael Warnock wins, Joe Manchin will finally do what we all know he should go on and do, and declare himself as a full-fledged car carrying member of the White Nationalist Party. That leaves Kristen Sinema, who's shaking her boots because it may be Ruben Gallego, somebody else in Arizona. She's probably gonna get primaried. Now I'm just gonna I'm gonna end with this because this ain't really about politics this morning. I'm just putting in the context how the we when we come together and move kind of pushes back against the social structure and gives us perhaps a little bit more room to operate on this weekend when we think about the fact that in this early election, early voting cycle in Georgia, that we are constantly reminded by these historical events, whether it be the the, the killing of John Brown, the killing of Mark Clark and Fred Hampton, that power will always do what is necessary to maintain itself. In the case of John Brown, you know, we understand maybe I like slavery, maybe I don't like slavery, but what you're not going to do is disrupt this social structure. And you're a white man, so we're going to put you to death, along with a couple of these Negroes that were with you. You know, a couple of your sons live their life out there at Harper's Ferry. In 1969, y'all just want to feed black people and give them health care and sickle cell testing and free breakfast for their children and liberation schools for their children. And yeah, nah, uh-uh. Because we also hear you talking about guns. Now, we we don't see you talking about guns to hunt people, but we don't care. You got a gun and we got guns and you can't just have guns. So we're just going to start killing you. We'll just start killing you if you get too effective. We'll just take you out. You know, but then there were many Panther Cubs. One of which, of course, my dear friend and brother, Sharif Meki in Philadelphia, who both whose parents were Panthers in the Philly chapter, along with uh, then Wesley Cook, now Mumia Abu Jamal so many others um baba matulu shakur has made it out of uh, his extended incarceration the state when you give him a death sentence see there are two ways of doing a death sentence death penalty you convict somebody you kill them then or after their appeals run out or you give them life the slow death penalty and uh baba matulu got out godfather of course of tupac shakur whose mother afini was involved in that whole Panther formation. I mean, these these are the Panthers, but they had Cubs and the Cubs are still around today fighting that good fight. So on this weekend, we remind ourselves of of Clark and, and, and Hampton. And the We formation finally brings me to, on the 22nd anniversary, December the 3rd of the day, that Gwendolyn Brooks, the great poet, uh, born in topeka kansas but best known in chicago made transition i pulled a few copies of my prized copies of black world here's gwenlyn brooks when I mean, we talked about Gwendolyn brooks many times there she is in an excerpt from her book report from part one the autobiography of Gwendolyn brooks she eventually published subsequent volumes this is september 1972 edition of black world and if you want to read all the black worlds and negro digests which we've talked about so that it can help you um imagine as hoyt fuller would say Imagine the unimaginable. That's <laughs> why Fuller, the man himself. Um, you can read them on Google Books. All of them are available from when it was Negro Digest back in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s, all the way through 1975 when it was transformed by then into Black World. But, you know, this is the anniversary of Gwen Book's transition in the year 2000 was 20... 2022, December the 3rd, 2022, March, 22 years. You know, Gwen Brooks, who I'm evoking her because I want to put her in conversation for a moment today with her friend, Margaret Walker Alexander, another titan poetress. Um, And I want to put that in the conversation as we're thinking about we and how we we make. And I'll I'll pause here to set this in a very specific context we're dealing with today. Gwendolyn Brooks worked most of her life in and around Black institutions. Institutions are important because institutions allow the we to engender and extend the we. Young people born in institutional formations, whether it be family and community, receive training and expectations, receive training in investments receive training in terms of being then brought and cultivated into a set of responsibilities first to community. So the young brother who's the captain of the United States football team soccer team at the World Cup, you would not expect him to give to articulate something that spoke to a we. As people of African descent, even as the poet David Jope says, Africa, my Africa, though I've never seen you, my face is full of your blood, even though his face is full of the blood of Africa, as far as the social structure is concerned, you look a certain way. Therefore, we 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 project onto you certain expectations. Yeah. Domestic anthropology to repurpose what these white boys told Oyewanke Iwumi. If you're studying yourself, yourself is a other to us. So therefore, you must be an anthropologist, not a sociologist. What do you do with the Africans of the United States who are theoretically Americans? Well, when we study y'all, it's not y'all, not us. So we can't say anthropology because, you know, you are domestic, but it's kind of a form of domestic otherness because you ain't really us. So when we study y'all, we're looking at black stuff, this kind of thing. But if you are engendered in a we, in a governance formation, in a family structure, in a structure which has certain expectations, then you are—you are. There are certain expectations made of you, and you go through certain rites of passage. Gwen Brooks went through those rites of passage. Her friend Margaret Walker, Alexander went through those rites of passage, Fred Hampton went through those rites of passage in Maywood as we talked about over and over again, when we went through the life of, of Fred Hampton. You are engendered through community. Sharif el went through those rites of passage. We went through those rites of passage. We went through those expectations. Here's somebody else that went through those expectations. Uh, a brother who is, you know, right in our age group, Professor Hunter, I think he's 55, who very soon, May, in fact, maybe today, tomorrow, because right now in Jackson, Mississippi, the Southwest Athletic Conference is having its championship game. Uh, Southern University Jaguars, had, fresh off their victory at the Bayou Classic last week over Grambling State University, is facing the Jackson State University Tigers, led, coached by Deon Sanders, who came out of black communities. Right? Well in order to stop a whole-scale slave rebellion, not an imaginary one like the one Chris Rock was playing around that he was going to lead in the movie in Top 5, or even a movie like Will Smith, who is not talking about a rebellion of a bunch of Africans, but one African trying to escape and build back and get back to his community who then uses the Union Army to advance his interests and even when recaptured, escapes again. No, we're talking about Deion Sanders and an entire U.S. slave Economy based on the exploitation of African labor not slavery with the whips where they put it on your back Slavery in terms of mental slavery in fact <laughs> What it, uh, On the back of this issue of black world with Gwendolyn brooks they would put these little saint these little vignettes on the back So there are a few things more forgivable than when men knowingly betray themselves And he writes about you know, he's writing about this During during the deepening mood of rebellion that characterized the Black 60s, a new generation learned an ancient lesson that power makes concessions only when challenged by counterpower. Those bright-eyed idealists who began by singing black and white together and we shall overcome ended with the sober recognition that in a racist society, Black and white will touch only tangentially. Again, those comedians. Their togetherness, a pathetic defiance of a pattern as rigid and as immutable as death. And what was overcome was little more than their innocence. The cold realization that all the flowery and thrilling talk about freedom and justice and equality criminally has meant only in the Disneyland atmosphere of high school civics classes. Right, Why they fighting, Why Jerry Jones and his friends don't want the curriculum to reflect the reality. Cause see, you could swap out that picture of the Little Rock Nine going into Central High School and put in the picture of Jerry Jones and his friends at North Central High School when the Africans are trying to get up in there. And Jerry Jones, I was just there to watch. Okay, but between the building and these children, between the world and me is you. Now, I know you're going to have a few Negroes come down there and try to turn their back and take a few whips for you. And they getting whipped, except that whip ain't in the hand of white people. That whip is in the hand of black people. You see a little governance conversation going on now in the black community with those who would defend their master because they love their master. But at any rate, you can't put that picture of Jerry Jones in the textbooks. They don't want the picture of Little Rock Nine in there because part of the way that you create an imaginary we in this country called United States of America is what I would call the violence of erasure. We start today. We love you. Really? Why do you love me? We love you because you make money for us. You work for us. You for uh, you entertain us. And so White Fuller writes, he says, the Black Consciousness Movement was born of this stark reality. If racism savaged the nation's soul, then the psychological survival of those singled out as victims demanded that they first clearly identify their enemies and then systematically act, systematically act, not individual, systematically act to gain the power and unity with which to confront and ultimately to defeat their enemies. We'll go on, but I mean, this kind of stuff is all through Black World Negro Digest. Y'all go look at these. So, before they disappear, because I'm trying to figure out who got the intellectual property. I'm going to say less. I'm going to say less because I always believe that, you know, this technology is a luxury. In fact, let me just read something from Gwen Brooks in a little pamphlet she published called, well, Third World Press published called Very Young Poets, Gwynlyn Brooks. This is a message, an introduction to children who want to write poetry. She gives them a love letter in 1983. This is what she says about technology. It's called computer. She wrote a she wrote a little poem called computer. Y'all see computer. She says, a computer is a machine. A machine is interesting. A machine is useful. I can study a computer. I can use it. We're doing it now. Who made it? Gwen Brooks writes, human beings made it. She says, I am a human being. I am warm. I am wise. I have empathies for animals and people. I conduct a computer. A computer does not conduct. So, you know, one of the reasons I like to be able to pull that is when they turn off the lights on everything, then you know, I just wait till the sun come up and keep reading. Why? Because I got the physical book, um, you know, including all the black worlds, so and Negro Digest. So if they ever lose, we ever lose access to that stuff electronically, you probably want some a few of us to have the digital physical copy so we can have a Wahimi Mesu at some point when we seize back control of the technology if it ever comes back. But that having been said, you know. Gwendolyn Brooks, Margaret Walker, working in Black institutional formations. In, 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 in governance formations we control, we can build the kind of power that will allow us to push back and not only extend ourselves, but help transform the world. And so I want to think about that on this weekend when it will may be announced, I don't know, probably, I'm not trying to be a prophet, and frankly, I don't care, which is really where I'm going with this. I don't care as much as people might think we should care. The concern of people who have exploited black labor since the beginning of our sojourn in this hemisphere, want to continue to exploit black labor. So Jerry Jones, who as a teenage boy is like, what are these black people doing trying to get over here? I'm gonna stand between them and the building because I'm just curious. And Jerry Jones of 2022 that's like, yeah. had to put down a whole slave rebellion during that george floyd mess so i got on my knees in my billion dollar stadium too long these negroes keep coming here play for me and you know i buy and sell bodies i don't care the color of the bodies but the black ones seem to be a little bit more valuable which is why ain't nobody asked lebron james and he said why ain't y'all ask me about the jerry jones thing but i'm wondering when they gonna ask uh one of the most valuable uh Employees that Jerry Jones dealt for a whole damn team, which gave him the only Super Bowl rings he has. I don't wonder why nobody asked Herschel Walker. Y'all remember that? Right? Herschel Walker worked for Donald Trump and Jerry Jones, didn't he? Prof. I'm trying to remember. Um, Yes. The U.S. Generals. Uh, right. US, yes. New mm, Jersey. And, general, yes. And the Dallas Cowboys. In fact, he was damn near the only valuable asset. What, what was it? Minnesota? I forget. What did they trade Walker to and got half the damn team? It was gonna get rid of Michael Irvin, I think, but they kept Michael Irvin and that left the dog and uh DAWG from Georgia and uh looked up and it was dog gone, <laughs> dog gone. <laughs> and they got back all them picks and they got about and they turned that into all
0: 18 one- players and draft picks. And it also involved the San Diego
1: Chargers. Let me, Prof. Wait a minute, come back on screen because I, I, I'm sure I misunderstood. I didn't see your mouth moving when you said, "How many? 18. Stop playing. Eighteen players. Herschel Walker got traded for eighteen people and draft picks. And draft it, picks. Does it say who some of those players were or who Hold the picks turned into? Let me. Uh, I know it's some Cowboys fans in here who gonna be mad when they hear these names. Okay. Maybe okay. my memory, because I don't really, you know. Auction block never really appealed to me that much, even when I was cheering for one side or another to and another plantation.
0: The Vikings, uh, there was uh to the Cowboys Jesse Solomon, David Howard, uh Isaac uh
1: Holt, Alex Stewart. It was the picks. What the picks become? Does it say the first pers- round?
0: No, um I would have to do a little bit more. Yeah, I think the picks in turned into like Troy Oh, a- turn, turn turned into Emmett, Emmett Smith. What? Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Hold on. It's a sixth round pick turned into um, Stan Smog, Smog. I don't know who that was Yeah, he didn't uh, make it. Alonzo Highsmith. Alonzo oh. Highsmith. Oh. Highsmith oh. Uh, Darren Woodson. Oh, Darren Woodson. Kevin, Kevin Smith uh, turned into Clayton Holmes. One of the picks, all of these picks. Oh my goodness. No, yeah. no, no.
1: That's, that's, but that's the big one. Emmett no. Smith. I mean, no, you know. So, you basically traded Emmitt Smith for Emmett Smith, and you got Charles Wilson, and you got Hyde Smith. One dude, but he ain't been. Has anybody? Maybe I missed it because I really ain't been paid. Did anybody ask Herschel Walker about his former boss?
0: If I'm being honest, I'm, I I can't. After, you know, there's, there's just so right, much, right. To say, oh, Dr. Carr. I'm not even, you That's know, true. werewolves and vampires and uh, you know, <laughs> the erections and all of that. You know, <laughs> I can't do but so much
1: of that. Look, hey y'all! If you were not fortunate enough to be among the three hundred or plus who were all together on the live Foolishness Fridays here in DC a couple of weeks ago, when Professor Hunter and Lamont King and them did that, mean you did that interview with Herschel Walker, <laughs> then you missed gold. <laughs> you just had to listen to the recording because yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too much. It's too much. You can't because you can't. You can't clown a clown. But on the football field, that man very valuable. You basically traded him for your Super Bowls. But ain't nobody asking, because if they asked him, he probably just say, who's Jerry Jones? I, I think uh, you know, I see Jerry Jones and there, uh, man. You know, Jerry Jones. Uh, but anyway, I'm not even going to try, because I mean. Don't, it be, don't, don't I, do it.
0: Don't do yeah, it. Don't I, it. Don't I, I'm do not. It.
1: That, that's it's <laughs> fit. That's the Egyptians. It's fit. In other words, in, 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 the, in, in the Egyptian world sense, the worldview, way of knowing, There is no such thing as good and evil that are of equal power. What you have is the universe, reality, which is always in divine order, what they would call ma'at. So, however, what you have is momentary appearances of interruption in divine order, which they may call isfet, which is why in English they would translate that to chaos. Yes, because at the core of Western worldviews, you have the notion of chaos the Greek mythology, the Roman mythology, I mean, they they get these chaos agents, right? But that's only, that's illusory because every action has a reaction. The concept of Ma'at can't be reduced to any one label, truth, balance, reciprocity, order. It it, It really is an attempt. The Egyptians are doing an attempt. These ancient Africans are giving an attempt to say that everything moves in a pattern and in an order. So even when you do dirt, dirt can come back to you. And we know that. That, that continues in our way of knowing. But yeah, trying to uh, mimic Herschel Walker at this moment, when we're making a much more important fact, the points, would introduce a moment of effect and would take a moment to reset into the order. So let's continue with the order. You're absolutely right. So on this weekend, we got this election going. And this weekend, which marks the anniversary of deaths and assassinations and things, which are the att- attempt to impose power, we may very well hear, Sometime today or tomorrow or early next week, sometime between the SWAT champion, whoever wins the Southwestern Athletic Conference, and the odds are it will be Jackson State, although you know there's a lot of Southern fans, I ain't mad at y'all, and I really don't have a dog in this fight because all black colleges meet the the MEAC champion, the Middle East, what is it, Mid Eastern Atlantic Conference champion. North Carolina Central, in Atlanta, two weeks from this Saturday at the Celebration Bowl, the HBCU National Championships. That's gonna be a time, what a time, what a time. As Redwood Jr. said, we ain't worried about America, we worry about where the party at, where the party two weeks from today is going to be in Atlanta at the Celebration Bowl. It's gonna be where one of the parties is at, right? So whether that's Deion Sanders' team, Jackson State, or whether it's the Southern University Jaguars, it's going to be one of them two teams. They playing today the to settle that. And maybe today, tomorrow, sometime between now and then, there's going to be, there may be an announcement that Deion Sanders has been bought. And just like Herschel Walker got traded for 18 papers, the whole white uh, players, the whole white world in athletics determined to put down a slave rebellion, not a Chris Rock imaginary top five slave rebellion, not a Will Smith escape slave rebellion in, in Emancipation, but a real life slave rebellion in Jackson, Mississippi. Their plans to squelch that will have been executed.
0: To the, so, the story is out, right? It's, is it? Uh, yeah, Colorado State is offered him five million dollars a year. Um, Colorado.
1: Yeah, Boulder,
0: Colorado, 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 um, Colorado. I'm struggling with this. And I, I don't. I, I just. This was. I feel like we don't sit in the soil long enough to take root. And, you know, and I think about bamboo and I'm writing some things. So, you know, bamboo, it takes about five years for the root system to, you know, spread out. But once it does, you can't really kill bamboo. Like, bamboo is like, I'm gonna pop up here, I'm gonna pop up there, you can cut me down here, I'm gonna show up a mile away because the root system is so deep. And I feel like we don't stay in long enough to build and develop that root system that is unstoppable. And it was like a couple more years, just two more years, not get it. The resources are horrible, there's bad water, there's all of these things. But if one person can withstand all of that, it was this man. It's this man. And the goal, yes, and in your mind, because this is the lie we tell ourselves, all of us right? All of us who at some point leave an HBCU to go to another school, we're, gonna, we're going to set and frame Blackness and we're going to come and we're going to bring all of the people along with us because we really believe that, right? That we're, we're going to do good with this money. This money can do good, but what is ripped up before it's able to take root can't be replaced,
1: no, now, five well, million dollars a year. I don't know. I mean, I just when you, say, when you say it can't be replaced, you mean when you say that, help us say a little bit more. About I'm saying
0: it. that you you've you've stopped the the progress of something that didn't really get a chance to become unstoppable, and then you're going over there and the five million dollars a year you're gonna give up resources and opportunities. I'm sure to all the host of black children who are gonna get their skulls banged in together and uh you know have CTE later and be studied. How about that? But at what at what cost? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and and we'll never know. So because it didn't take root and what he left behind the legacy, maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be some things in Jackson uh, that will uh, happen as a result. Maybe there's a deal. You know, if I go here, then you have to double the amount of money that's left back for Jack. I don't know, but I just feel like, damn. Well, so
1: let's, let's 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 using the powerful metaphor of the bamboo plant that you just laid out. What. Is planted at Jackson State. What did Deion Sanders plant there? Pride. <laughs> so in other words, they weren't proud at Jackson State before Deion Sanders.
0: I mean, the Jackson State folk were proud. Yeah, exactly. I've been there. I mean, one of the baddest, it's one of the most amazing exactly. campuses I've ever been on. Most, oh now. Most Come powerful on. campuses I've ever, when no I did way. my HBCU tour, I went to no Howard way. and I, I went to Morehouse and Spelman. Well, when I got to Jackson, Come
1: those, on now. Those, those young people were lit. Yes, it was, was special. Play. That's yeah. right. So he didn't plant pride.
0: Okay, you're
1: right. he He brought awareness to the pride that was there and in his sons and in the young brother he took from Florida State, he threatened to weaponize that pride differently. But if Jackson State went 0 and 11 every year, and I say this as a proud former member of the, of the Tennessee State University aristocratic of Bands. We're gonna beef with the sonic boom of the South until the end of the earth, and it's gonna be pride on both sides. Deion Sanders ass and go dance up and down there. You can do whatever the hell you want, bro. But but the bamboo is 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 the institution, not the individual. What what now, So I'm saying that I'm, I'm saying it to raise this question because I like you. I'm kind of we're all kind of trying, you know. What did Deion Sanders bring that they didn't have before?
0: Uh, possibility the fear that uh, every HBCU could take on Alabama, uh, Michigan, uh, all Penn State, all of these biggies now. Uh, these young people have options, and the options mean that I could play. In places where I'm seen, felt, heard, teachers gonna come check on me, make sure I'm de- where I'm loved, where I'm validated, and I'm not just some workhorse or some uh, you know person in bondage that's getting a scholarship and maybe some NIL money or whatever. But like, I can actually bring these championships, these world championships, these national championships to these schools because
1: it's the talent. It's us. It's let's us. Play it Let, let's play, that, let's play out. Let's play that out for a minute. Let's say. He not only stays but he stays for 10 years let's say he makes it a career how long before hbcus are playing alabama ohio state michigan for the national championship do you think two years I'm what getting- would it require because they're all in fcs at this right. point right what would it require for them to play what would it require for grambling jackson state fam bethune cookman any of those schools tennessee state to play ohio state for the national championship because because all the schools i mentioned the hbcus are in fcs what would it take <sighs> i mean logistically not even logistically structurally okay. structurally. structurally jackson state keeps going 11-0 wins everything no never at what point, what would jackson state have to do structurally to well, already now.
0: started i mean facilities were one thing right to, to okay, provide so
1: a huge stadium, right
0: huge stadiums the facilities the the locker room the train the coaching the training you know bringing in more coaches because they have more coaches right uh,
1: which some people are saying oh is not a problem you said Deion sanders may be able to turn down five to seven million dollars but they're gonna pay his assistant coaches and right that- they're gonna poach they were gonna poach yeah uh, is that what we call it um yeah, hmm. let me let me introduce this. You may remember this. This was about almost twenty years ago, maybe a little bit more. L.C. Cole and his brother, and they got in all kind of trouble because you know we can't do what white people do. So, and uh parenthetically, I'm looking at these uh stories now that are saying, "Well, Colorado, are they taking a chance?" Because remember that Prime Time Academy. See, this wasn't a problem when you are working with the Negroes, but now you're gonna deal with the white boys. You got to be. that's cool. the other thing. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, he you no know, he's not gonna succeed. But I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And I hate to say that I'm not putting a bad reputation I'm saying, son, you got to look at history. Oh, no, not my son. We're the same age, brother. You got to look at history. But anyway, I know you think you've learned to hit look, look at history, but let me be very clear looking at history don't mean just saying just interviews talking about we got to understand our history. Yeah, that's what you say. But if you understand how this cycle works, you know, if you don't go undefeated in the next two or three years, they're going to. They're go, they gonna they're gonna put that. It's like them chains around your neck, them gold chains, they're gonna drape this around your neck. It's called the Primetime Academy. They're gonna have some, and then they're gonna say, Well, you know, you are a good recruiter, but you ain't no coach, you're not that smart. You like a Herschel Walker walk up in that words, it's coming, brother. It's coming. You know, what I'm saying in the words of Big Daddy Kane, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Here I am. <laughs> RAW, a terrorist here to bring trouble to. In other words, so Dion, we know where this story goes, but. Here's the thing. Do they have to, they meaning the NC2A and its member institutions, this criminal enterprise, this billion-dollar criminal enterprise, do they have to accept if, with the facilities, with the infrastructure, an HBCU makes the leap to the larger division? We saw it in Alabama, at Alabama State University, which has a huge stadium. L.C. Cole and them boys, who were at Tennessee State first, then they went to Alabama State because Alabama State announced the president, the board trustees, they announced they to be the first HBCU to go Division One. So they got the stadium. They got, now ain't no Deion Sanders walking up down the sidelines. Ain't no Eddie George. Ain't no uh, Hugh Jackson at Grambling, Eddie George, Tennessee State. There's no Deion Sanders leading the charge, leading the parade. There is the move for the infrastructure. That's Alabama State. Then the story start coming out. Because Alabama State was winning big. You remember that? I don't know if you remember that, probably. Recruiting violations. Oh, blah, blah, blah. oh no. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, if Deion Santa stayed at Jackson State and they got up to warp speed, which isn't just about the size of your stadium, mm-hmm. but you know better than I do all the things that are involved in that. You think perhaps some of them Stories that they now beginning to whisper to set it up so that if he don't win all the games in the world at Colorado, they can drape this around his neck. You Absolutely. think those stories might find their way to Jackson State, Professor? Mark? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's right. Absolutely. That's which right.
0: Is, you know, which is why when we Come first down. started talking, I was saying that, you know, we can't – I remember a friend of mine whose daddy is a is a pastor, and he, he went to Lincoln, and he it was like this big-time NFL player – And he was like, how does he get away with these things? And we were having this conversation, you know, about all of the nefarious things this brother was doing. And, you know, and then he arrived at this, you know, I can't, we can't do what other people do, you know? And And shouldn't want
1: to, but we certainly can't, whether we want to or not. Right,
0: right. Because, you know, there's something corruptible, like they'll let you do things (laughs) if you, if you are operating in the system that allows them to continue to profit.
1: That's exactly But
0: if you are somebody that is due north and you very much are going to go back and, you know, Sankofa this thing, you know, there's going to be a problem. If you try to even, well, so-and-so, you can never, well, so-and-so, well, you know, we're in that so-and-so right now. Amazon could keep the the video up. Kyrie got to pay a fine and apologize. Right. Amazon CEO is like, it's making money and free speech. Right. And you can't touch me. Okay, so we, we live by different rules, right? So right. if that's the case, you can keep banging against it. But why again, to your point, why do you want to? If he has done things, which he probably has, sure.
1: Uh, oh so no, we, we absolutely know he has.
0: Somebody's keeping notes, and you're right, it will come back and it's going
1: to absolutely take him out. No question. But since mm-hmm. he's not the bamboo, but the illusion of bamboo is okay. okay. The bamboo is the institution. See, okay. these white boys think. They want him because they think a bunch of black boys gonna follow him and they will. But here's the problem. You said it at the beginning, his sons, uh, this kid, Travis, every player on that team walks into a classroom where faculty are like, I don't care whether you play football, handball, toe ball, My investment is in you. You see, you're part of a weed now. And so there's an initiation I'm going to undertake you in because there are expectations that your mom and them had when when you came here. And unlike Nick Saban, the slave master coach at Tuscaloosa, who will say anything to a black mother or father desperate to change their living conditions or not, or to be rich or for whatever reasons, we're going to take care of your son at Alabama. That faculty can go straight to hell. In fact, they're already in hell. You can name a, a, a building for authoring Lucy. We talked about that. And there are some, I got some, we have fine colleagues at the University of Alabama, and there are a lot of faculty there. They're a lot more uh, progressive, a lot more human-centered than the state of Alabama and KIV, Grandma Clan, and the rest of that crew <laughs> down there, you know, building prisons with COVID money and all that. The faculty at Alabama is not to be blamed for this, but let's be very clear, them boys are not going to Alabama those young those girls those women and men who are playing athletics at Alabama are not there for the classroom experience they're not at Jackson State necessarily for the classroom experience but the institution is going to require them to be that's not going to transplant to Colorado I'm sure you remember and wrote about and probably even interviewed and maybe spent some time with brother who you know my brother brother in love as they would say They say brother-in-law but that don't mean none to us you know my brother Randy Fuller my sister's husband You know, he played for years in the NFL. He's a cornerback. He played for the Seahawks. He played for the Falcons, went to the Super Bowl with the Steelers. And when he was at the Steelers, one of his best friends on the team was a young brother named Cordell Stewart, who came to our dissertation defenses. In fact, they had a day off and they flew from Pittsburgh down to Philly to come to our dissertation defenses. It was a beautiful thing. And uh, Dr. Carruthers, Jake Carruthers, like, hey, man, I'm here for the defense, but I'm trying to meet Cordell Stewart because he was the quarterback before he was at the Steelers for Colorado. Remember that? Mm -hmm.
0: And most people only know him as Portia. (laughs) portion <laughs> husband, y'all that amazing. Y'all, we are, we are, <laughs> how could you know more famous than him? Somebody that is me.
1: amazing. That amazing. just shows
0: you the short
1: circuit of memory.
0: Slash. Underground railroad. Anyway, go ahead.
1: <laughs> Isn't that something? That is amazing, right? Because Cordell Stewart, of course, who you know was at you know obviously in uh, uh, Pittsburgh in the long tradition of quarterbacks who had to put up with all kind of stuff. You know, I think about Jefferson Street, Joe Gillum, of course, who's from Tennessee State, who should have been the start. Of, and we talk about football and politics or before that, Eldridge Dickey, Lord's Prayer, because in some ways, the fear that the white nationalists have, of course, in, in athletics here in the United States of America, is that exactly what you said, these HBCUs going. And but in some ways, that will be a wahemi miso. In other words, the HBCUs might return to where they were in terms of athletics in the 1950s and 60s. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, when the best back, talk about the Dallas Cowboys, well, you got to talk about somebody called the world's fastest human, Bullet Bob Wright. <laughs> no, Bob uh, Hayes. Bullet Bob Hayes out of Florida a and you got to talk about sweetness, Walter Payton out of Jackson State University. You got to talk about uh, Buck Buchanan and Ed Tuttle Jones out of Tennessee State. James Shaq Harris out of Grambling. you talk about Doug Williams out of Grambling. In other words, if this wouldn't be unprecedented. It would be a wahami Messu with one adjustment. The integration that Jerry Jones was trying to stop as a stalwart teenage clan adjacent boy allowed him, as he grew to manhood, to cherry pick the Negroes who were on HBCU rosters and bring them to the HWCUs, the plantation schools, in the name of integration. But if there was a return to the HBCUs, now you ain't got black people busting down the doors to go to the white schools. You can still go there. Some of y'all going to go there. But now some of us coming back to where we are. And the simple fact of the matter is they shouldn't be coming to follow Coach Prime, and they never came to follow Coach Prime because, like my brother-in-law, Randy Fuller, he wanted to go to Tennessee State from jump. One of his mentees, when he coached on that staff under Coach Rod Reed, my classmate uh, uh, Cromarty, he is an All-Pro corner. Was an All-Pro cornerback in the, in the NFL. He wanted to come to Tennessee State. There are still black athletes, women and men. Robert Covington played basketball at Tennessee State. He's on the NBA roster. I mean, you can still get there. Now, what Prime did was put a target on the back of all the HBCUs. I'm thinking we got to think the long game in this. And right now, there are people who are saying, came for prime, stayed for the band, came for prime, stayed for the degree, came for prime, stayed for the governance feeling, the ways of knowing, the movement and memory. That's not going to be a lot. Because we all have to remember in this field of violence called semi-professional and professional athletics in the United States of America, these uh, young people who go to these institutions, those who have the best and the most uh, most developed athletic ability, are basically rentals for a year or two. So how many of them would have stayed for years? I can imagine what kind of conversation is going to be between uh, Deion Sanders and his sons, who, because of name, image, and licensing, are able to take their celebrity wherever they go. And once they get out there in the cold ass border, uh, Boulder, Colorado, and realize them girls ain't out there. Oh, there will be girls, but they won't be them girls in Mississippi. They're going to be them girls from Boulder. Uh, you know what I mean? They, they're going to perhaps say, Dad, I understand. But I don't understand. Thank you. Buck Buchanan was Grambling. That's right. Buck Buchanan was Grambling. That's exactly right. Grambling, of course, who one time led all the co- uh, colleges in the country, a number of NFL players coming from one school. That's what they were afraid of. But you know, it's interesting thinking about this in the context of what you're saying. The bamboo is the institutions. And the question of what you get from an HBCU must be tied to what you give to an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Dean Sanders is not a product of historically black college or university, but he is a product of Africana, communities so Deion sanders in boulder colorado or wherever he may end up at five to seven million dollars a year however much money and if he wouldn't go for five to seven next year they'd be back with 14 to 21 The year after that they'd be back for 240 whatever you gotta stop this slave rebellion at least that's how they perceive it realizing not realizing that he ain't the bamboo but you'll get it in the long run because, see, the, the 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 pushback against this, too, is if and when he leaves, if it's today, tomorrow, next week, next year, whenever. Everybody realizes what has happened. This is y'all trying to prevent a slave rebellion. And all you've done is engendered more resentment. So somewhere there's a six or seven year old to say, I would die before I run a banana field for a white school. And you ain't gonna know about her until women's basketball becomes the biggest sport in the country in 20 years. And she's playing for South Carolina State because she swore she would never play. But you see, this is the thing y'all don't understand about us. You think you beat us, but <laughs> you, the us you think we are is a figment of your imagination. And so when Deion Sanders is in the locker room talking like he talking, boy, you look at you looking, you shine like new money, boy. You coming here with them chains on your, we're going we to go ahead and make this. Then white sports writers looking at you like, look at this monkey, as long as we win though. Because this is, man, if we you know. what did he say? I don't even understand what he said. Meanwhile, then Jackson, the writers, the people in there, the fans like, yeah, boy, you shine like new, and then put on that Bobby Blue Lamb, I mean, we just go to the casino and listen to the, yeah, that's what you're leaving in Jackson, bro. and I ain't mad at you, this is not a critique of Deion Sanders, because I understand that the bamboo ain't you, brother, you came to Jackson State with all of that, because you was raised by black people in black communities, this is your first job where you can be that, might be your last job where you can be that, and when they come for you, and in a moment of frustration, you say, now, y'all making y'all making me, me say, man. Y'all make me think I should never left Jackson. And the headline the next day, and all the press in the whole white world is, Sanders' resentment surfaces. No explanation for why he can't win the game. Perhaps he's overmatched ment- mentally. While Jim Harbaugh could lose everything, including his car keys, for years. But now yeah, that he, he didn't got Michigan hurt. right with <laughs> with mm-hmm. the Negro talent, he's a genius. But they gave him time. Mm-hmm. See, the time is what you would have had, Dion if you are stayed at Jackson State, if you leave, you ain't gonna have no time at Colorado. Yeah, they may give you five year contract, four year contract, but even if you win and win and win and win again, the message has been sent to our communities, which is for those of you who wanna do that, y'all follow Dion. Your name, your label will go from cheerleader for black institutions to beautiful pair of earrings for white institutions. Nice wrist bracelet to ring for white institutions but part of you who will continue to be celebrated all of that, which you will be well celebrated for and beautifully celebrated for and importantly celebrated for you're going to leave that in Mississippi brother. Thanks for the new turf. You know, the stadium was there, but you know, thanks for the refurbishings. Thanks for all that, but all that stays. And guess who gets to come in next or maybe next, next, or maybe next, next, next somebody who's not you, who played in the leagues, who has some celebrity, who has a different objective. I have no doubt you got a different objective, too. But see, the white boys understand they're going to put money, 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 which leads me now to where we want to kind of wind this up. I should mention this, though. Go ahead. I, I, yeah, no, yeah, I,
0: no, I just want to, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how people build their careers off of us when their intention is always to be accepted by them, whether it's black media, whether it's politicians, you know, I think about politicians that move into Newark and then, you know, become mayor and then Senator because they want to be president, you know, I'm like, you know, but serve the community, you know, and I've been talking to a lot of politicians on the show and you think, and I was just asking and talking to Chris, Chris uh, Jones and he's really, you know, his goal is to build Arkansas. You know, it's not, I don't, you know, like he's a rocket scientist. He wants to build the community that he grew up in because that's important. And imagine if every politician that we elect cared enough about the place that they come from, that that's their goal. Not, you know, I'm gonna use this space to get here. I'm gonna use this space because this is the stepping stone to that money. Or this is the stepping stone to being on, you know, network television. Or this, you know, but I wanna build my community with this art with this sport with this with these political uh you know aspirations i want to use politics to make the schools better in my community that i come from cuz i come from here imagine if 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 we elected if 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 that's a requirement like yes. you don't get my vote unless you know give me your receipts for <laughs> for, for having done these things and that, right. that you're from here too because that matters and imagine if everybody from a place had somebody from a place representing them
1: Well, we got to have a place. Something you brought up earlier the week when we were exchanging messages, and I brought it thanks to you to my students on Thursday, was the story you saw about Nigeria and language policy. And I was, I thank you for that because I had had glanced at a headline, but I hadn't really focused on it. You sent it to me. I said, Oh, let me take this right in here. I said, My colleague, Professor Hunter, uh, brought this to my attention. So let's talk about this. And of course, that's a classroom with a hundred students in it. Most of them, you know, from all over the African world. So they're Nigerian students in them. How hey, y'all feel about this? And they started talking about. It. I mean, would you introduce that? Because I want to use that. No, I mean, you afraid. often talk about this car crash that
0: we're talking in this language mm-hmm. called English, and there are no words even t- talking with Dr. Beatty that really truly represent the spirit of how we move in the world. We got all of these, you know, utterances, yes. so we can communicate. But imagine, so Nigeria, first of all, let me just shout out Nigeria when they said no advertising without Nigerians in it, like all of this, White faces, everybody white get off of the advertising. I was like, Oh, they, they want something right now.
1: It's a very Nigerian thing to do. These are the most unruly Negroes. That's how you know Africans who came through enslavement. That's how you know most of us got some Nigerian blood. Cause them is the most turn up Negro. When they decide to do something, they just be like, F it. we don't we go, they go from zero to hundred, y'all. They got no yes. shit in Nigeria.
0: Now the schools, so English was the national language. Yes. And no longer. So <laughs> started. <laughs> they are. You will now be taught in the language of of your community. And I was like, "Damn, how about that? What does that look like? And how what does that, that mean? Because it's so powerful." And I wanted to read a quote. I hopefully I can find it uh, quickly because the story's not up. I don't have the story up because I got Dion Sanders up. I got Cordell Stewart up. You know, got me Google searching all these folk. Oh, uh,
1: let me oh, let me Lord. find the story. story you sent me.
0: Yes, I got it. Like, let me just go to my text. No, nope, but nope, nope, nope. well, you got it. You got it up. Yeah. Hold you got on. It. Okay. Hold on. Okay. You got it right there. Okay. But it yes. is a quote. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. The, the uh, education minister said pupils learn much better when they're taught in their own mother tongue.
1: And I was like, what does that mean for us? That's the you question know. I asked the students what it looked like for us. Now, this is interesting, right? Because like like we are in Nubia seven days a week at this point, including Monday night, when we have our our, our Africana Studies class. What does that look for us? What does that mean to us, Prof? I mean, now, he, here, are, here are folk, and we do it when we convene. We're here, we're here like this. You got Africans from the Caribbean. You got Africans from Latin America, Central America, Africans from North America, Canada, and the United States. You got Africans from the continent of Africa. And how many languages did they say in that story, Prof? Hold they speak on. in Nigeria. I think it's near the end. It's such a it's a short arc, but so power packed, such a punch. God dog it. All right. Do, now you, do you see, see you have it up? Do you have it up? Yeah. Let me see. Oh, hold, on, Instead, hold, on, uh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, I got it. Six hundred. <laughs> six hundred languages. Please understand when people talk about Africa like it's one place. It's six hundred different languages in Nigeria alone. So you come into school to be taught and think about the, This is a beautiful thing. And this is what, this is the genius, I think, of our aspirations and the distance between our aspirations and being able to implement because the nation state is a fictional concept. You know, everybody's written about that. Basil Davidson. I mean, so many people have written about that and talked about that. When you draw imaginary lines around people, you sever natural cultural connections and then you engender artificial ones that eventually grow into a different kind of consciousness. That's what they try to do in the United States. Nigeria is the same as the United States and different. Different in the sense that the the Africans of Nigeria are indigenous, like the First Nations people here in the United States and the Western Hemisphere. So just like there are thousands of different nations in the United States who got shoved into a concept called United States and then forced march places like, you know, uh, as, as I was saying last week, you know, uh, my niece, and nephew, and, and sister and brother in love were all in Alabama this past week, over the break. This time last year, of course, we were with my mom in Tennessee, and we were, you know, they in Alabama, and they were, you know, old, down there where my grandmother and grandfather's little house was, my granddaddy built with his own hands, the cinder block house. And, they, and Gussie was telling you, talking, she sent me a picture of uh, an ancestor that I had not seen, who is the um, the mother of my grandmother's sister. And this sister a Williams, the Williams line of my clan, um, she comes out of the Creek people, not completely Creek, but Creek or indigenous people. We know those people got forced martial along with the Seminoles, many of them into Oklahoma. But again, these are different groups of people who now we say, oh, they're in this country, this this state, this state. Well, in Nigeria, is no different. You draw an imaginary line around all those people. You got 600 different languages today. They call themselves Nigerian. So when you say you're gonna be taught in the language of your community, what does that look like in a school system? Cause ain't six, it would be like teaching all the indigenous people here in the language of their communities, which of course this criminal enterprise called United States of America worked hard to strip those, 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 those languages out of their mouths. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, in the context of Africans of the diaspora, I asked that question to students. And the students were like well what will be our indigenous tongue so somebody finally hit what i wanted them to say ebonics i said yeah because this was the controversy if you remember some of y'all remember this tony cook and others out in the bay area in oakland the white facing commercial press social structure press tried to float this lie that african people in the school boards in oakland and other places wanted to teach Ebonics in the schools. And so there were all these thought pieces. Oh, you want to teach Ebonics? Hold on, slow down. The child came to school speaking Ebonics. What they're saying is you do not devalue the language she brings into this first grade classroom while you are teaching European American vernacular English. You're not correcting her speech. You are linking her speech to a speech she's not familiar with. So it is like becoming, in a way, a form of bilingual. But what you wanna do is punish her home speech. Mm. The genius of her home speech, was she brought into that room because that's the speech of her community. Her mom, which is grammatically correct. Which means what? The people closest to her and all her relatives and community, translated as her momonym. What's them? Mom, How do you? Okay, this is what you do if you speak Ebonics. You have her come to the board, write mom and them, mom and them. Now put an equal, now translate that from your language to the white language. My mother and others. Hmm, that's close. Others like who? We know my auntie and them, so others is not just random others. No, it's other. Oh, so you're gonna have to translate that a little bit more. Others related by blood? Well, yeah, blood. Well, also my mom a friend, cause she'd be okay. So others related by blood and community? How do you, in other words, you know how hard it is to translate the genius of Ebonics into European-American vernacular English? And it's not just hard today. It's been hard. What does that mean? Translate that. Been <laughs> hard, meaning it has been hard for the entire existence of this language formation we call Ebon. You got to use a lot more words and you still ain't really got at it. Because when I say my mom you know, it's like Deion Sanders and said, you know, my boys and them go take these boys and them. Yeah, you say that in Colorado and the sports writers are like ignorant black. Well, they may not write that. They'll say colorful language of the beloved coach Sanders who recruited five more Negroes who can't read or write and said he was doing it to help them become young men. But the classrooms in Colorado, the black student union is on strike again because one of the professors came in and said black people had no history. See, you're not going out there to improve the lives of black men, Dion. You may think you are, and I'm not critiquing you. I'm saying, you're gonna leave that in Jackson. The faculty to do that is in Mississippi, not Colorado. But in terms of language, and all this is spurred by what you raised, Prof, in terms of how we commit to building institutions. In Nigeria, it's easier, even as it will be difficult to scale that up. In the diaspora, it's harder. Now, Jamaica, Haiti, and I'm listening to the students, having a conversation with the students, some of them Haitian, some of them Jamaican, second generation, some of them first generation, maybe third generation or fourth generation. What does that look like there? That's what the Europeans would call the patois or the Creoles. Well, you, you have to do that already. Because in addition to the Creole and Haiti, you got to speak Creole because that's what they speak at home. But you speak it too as a teacher. You can translate that into French because the French the Haitian speak ain't the French accepted in France any more than the Spanish the Puerto Ricans and Cubans speak is accepted in Spain. Those are the various Ebonics, which is why Ebonics is the correct term coined by Robert Williamson, as we talked about, not Black English. Black English is an attempt to impose a social structure formation on our cultural meaning making, on our languages. It's not Black English. It's Ebonics. It is African languages molded and adapted and shot through with the languages of colonialism. And it is more than words. It is phonology, it is sounds, it's syntax, it's idiom, which means if you speak Ebonics in Georgia or Jamaica, everybody know what, mm-hmm, means. It's the sound. The, the core of it is a governance concept. A way of knowing concept, a meaning-making. concept. The language is going to extend out of that. It's not Black English. anyone it's Black French or Black Spanish. Now, I said all that to say that in that conversation, that would be a hell, of, and it is a hell of a conversation for us to have. What would, what would, in, what would Indigenous African languages brought into the classrooms by African people all over the continent of Africa? Remember, this is the beef that the students and the people in South Africa had in 1976 at Soweto. In June 1976, when the damn white boys and South African police killed those black kids, beginning with Hector Peterson, the 16-year-old there in, in Soweto. They didn't want to go to school to be instructed in Afrikaans. Well, in Oakland, in the late 80s, they said, respect the language that the young people come into the classroom with and got pushed back from all the white boys. Of course they did. Of course they did. Even when you stumble in with your forms of variations on the English language, whether it be the the hills of West Virginia or Southern Ohio or the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, you're not berated for how you speak because the teachers know that. But when the the African child come in, unless you in a black school, where you got black teachers, again, shout out to El Mekki and them got to have more black teachers in the room, you're going to miss. If you go into a classroom in Philly and you don't know where to join is and you start punishing the children because they know where to join in and you don't. That was one of the first episodes of Abbott Elementary. Remember when she put John on the on the. Yeah. And bull. And bull. Oh, the bull for real. Oh, that bull had to join out. And I was looking at John like, come on, man. Come on, bull. Somebody don't speak. It's completely confused. (laughs) time, Right. Exactly. So at the nexus of that becomes intellectual warfare. And for that, I wanted to bring our elder who uh, just had a birthday, um, the great Adelaide Sanford. This is her memoir she just published with Haki Mahaboodi, From Enslavement to Belovedness, For the Dignity of My People, Dr. Adelaide Sanford. Because they tried to crucify her when she was up to be a regent on the New York State Board of reason I don't know if you remember that. She, I pulled up an interview Adelaide Sanford gave Uh, Years later, uh, she was interviewed, and of course, she was born in 1925, so that puts her at 97, Dr. the and she said that they tried to get me, she said they they accused me when I was uh, up for the Board of Regents, they accused me of uh, wanting to teach the teachers Ebonics. She said, I never took a public stand on Ebonics. She said, it was a major conference at Mega Everest, again, shout out to Luria now, and the National Organization of Linguistics declared Ebonics as a language. She said, it has a syntax, it has a system, it's grammatically intricate and so forth. And I never spoke at this conference. I wasn't involved in the conference. However, subsequent to that, after that, Charles Barron, who was then a member of the council, city council, had a, had a forum with Reverend Herbert Daltrey at their church. And they talked about Ebonics. And I was a participant in that panel. I tried to help them understand that no one was talking about teaching Ebonics. The children come speaking Ebonics, but every language system that a child brings to school should be respected as a language system. You don't condemn it because the language is full communication. There's no language that's superior to any other language. It's all I ever said about Ebonics. But when the issue came about my running for the Chancellor of the Board of Regents, they dragged it out and ran this article the paper, said I was a supporter of Ebonics, even had a manufactured picture of me with a sign that said Ebonics. He said, i never taken a public stand. Now she was being political at that moment. Moment because again, at least Sanford comes from a, an era my mom and him. That era the language at home you speak with your governance community, the language at school you go learn that language. And there are moments when you're trying to thread a needle. Deion Sanders, God bless him, trying to thread a needle at Jackson State, at least Sanford, trying to thread a needle, uh, a needle in New York. Greg Carr, Karen Hunter. We thread needles when we find ourselves in these social structure formations that we're trying to navigate for our people. Again, the name of her uh, memoir, For the Dignity of My People. You know, And, and in fact, uh, uh, Mama Adelaide went with us to Kemet. Um, the last time we were in Kemet, no, two times before she went, she was there when Asa Hilly made transition, and one we of her very close friends, Joyce King, we were talking about that we were at the Asa Hilliard Conference uh, a couple of uh, months ago. But anyway, I, I bring all this up to say that when you raise this question, here uh, of what it looks like to allow a thing to take root, and what it looks like to stay in a place, to reconnect to a place, when you're talking about language instruction in Nigeria, They're engaged in something that, you know, uh, Ngugiwafiango might call something torn and new. There was no Nigeria prior to the invasion. Now there is a Nigeria. So, how do you engage in a Wahimi Mesu, a repetition of the birth for a thing that was born out of violence? Well, you have a head start in the sense that you can go back and reclaim things that you never really fully abandoned because you preserved them in your communities. But now you want that structure to reflect that. And and Googie Wathiango, of course, many years ago, here's a little volume that Pope's probably familiar with that was originally published in 1981, no, 1986, called "Decolonizing the Mind: The Polit- the Politics of Language in African Literature." And this is in Googie top of his head anyway. In Googie's point in this little volume of essays, one of the points he's been saying. Is a world-famous writer. They keep saying well, he's going to win the Nobel Prize. My thing is, is you, know, you know, who gives a name about the Nobel Prize? Give it to him if the prize means something. You're not giving Ngugi Thiongo the Nobel Prize is a condemnation of the Nobel Prize. It ain't got nothing to do with Ngugi. But Ngugi, um, and we had him come speak to our students at freshman seminar. We had a whole uh, semester. The students read something to him, which is one of his books. Uh, in fact, I got a copy of it right here because I still teach this book. In fact, we'll be reading it in the Africana Studies class. Uh, when we get down to the se- second part of the class, something torn and new. Well, then decolonizing the mind, and Googie makes a point, one of the things he says, I'm gonna stop writing in English. My first language is Gikuyu. After that, the regional language is Kiswahili. But if you wanna read my writing, then you, I want you to read it. You get your translators. Maybe I'll find something for you. And you'll translate it from Gikuyu or Kiswahili into English, into French, into Spanish. But what we're gonna stop doing is devaluing our languages. Googie been saying that. And it's very important to understand because where does that leave us as African people in the diaspora who have our own ways of knowing, who have our distinct but connected meaning-making, cultural meaning-making, whose movement and memory is now so deeply influenced by the trauma of enslavement that if we're not careful, we anchor it all in enslavement to bring up somebody whose birthday, I think, was yesterday. No, the 1st of December, the great Lou Rawls. You know, this time last year, we was talking about Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, talking about Lou Rawls. Lou Rawls recorded another song called Tobacco Road. When you come out the hood, do you want to stay in the hood? No. Do you want to abandon the hood? No. So when Lou Rawls says, you know, I was born in a dump. My mama died and my daddy got drunk. He left me here to die or grow in the middle of tobacco road but it's a home the only life i've ever known and the lord knows i love tobacco now you think okay i'm leaving i ain't never my i was born in a dump you know, my, my my mama cried, my daddy got drunk. But then he goes on to say, uh, I'm going to leave and get a job. That's how you know it's the blues. With the help and the grace from God. Save my money and get rich, I know. And bring it back to Tobacco Road. See, the whole point is, I was fortified in that place, you call a dump, with values. And those values want me, they urge me, they require me to bring it back into that place and change the material condition, not the deepest cultural values and principles. This is the thing that we miss. Our values have, have been the reason we still exist. That's why again, you connect them Africa to the diaspora. Our values are why we continue. And as those values, here we are gonna bring it full circle. Those values sustain us. The question you raised, Prof, of how we engendering, returning to Wahemi Mesu, repetition of the birth of those values, granting in those values, strengthen our institutions so that we can stave off the worst of these attacks from the social structure and continue to grow, which will ultimately benefit all humanity. That is the dilemma we have, and there's not an example in terms of the things we're aware of collectively, which is why we spend time talking about celebrities, not because they are so great, but because they have visibility, which then gives us a moment to have point of entry for conversations about like this. You know, what can we learn from those things that will ultimately help us return to Lou Ross might say tobacco row. We would say the governance formations that we build. And in that respect, we kind of spend our final few minutes together in Jackson, Mississippi, at Jackson State, which was Jackson State College in 1967 to 68 when Margaret Walker Alexander, when Brooks' good friend, came to Jackson State. He from Birmingham, Alabama, Margaret Walker, born in 1915. Uh, her family moved, her daddy was a minister. I think her mom was a teacher, I think. They moved to New Orleans when she was nine or 10 years old. Uh, she eventually spent time at New Orleans University, which became Dillard University. Then they went to Chicago. She went to Chicago, Northwestern University. Eventually got a master's degree uh, at Iowa University, graduate training. In fact, wrote her dissertation, her dissertation and the writer's work at Iowa became her novel, her famous novel, Jubilee. And Margaret Walker spent her professional career most of her professional career as an academic at Jackson State College. This is a an interview. I I, I, I know I think I put those other black worlds in storage, but if you go on Google books and look under black world type in Phyllis Wheatley and Jackson State look around maybe February 1974 you'll find of the cover of black world for that issue is a bust of phyllis wheatley a bronze bust with her finger up against her temple you've probably seen this picture if you don't have any african-american art collection books the great sculptress elizabeth catlett the great artist more than just plastic uh i've seen that bust i've seen the a wooden version of it it was on display here when they were finishing up the museum of african-american history and culture they had the a wooden one that she had done on display next door at the Museum of American History. And let me pause here and raise the name of my dear friend and colleague, Kinshasa Conwell, who is the deputy director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, She's uh, retiring. Well, she will not be going to the museum every day, but as I joked with her, I sent her a message. I was down there the other day. I was like, you know, I'm in your building. I know you can't spell retire. I don't know any black women and men who who can spell that when they work for us. But uh, anyway, I thought about Kinshasa because while they were preparing the building, they had some of the things that were going to go in there in the other building in the Museum of American History and one of them was the Elizabeth Catlett wooden one but if you go February 1974 you should be able to see that on the cover but this is from December 1975 oh the reason they had it uh that bust reason why Elizabeth Catlett had made that bust it was dedicated in 19 let me go here uh, so i can remember the, the this is a this is an interview with Margaret Walker in the uh December 1975 issue of Black World, Margaret Walker, who we're going to end with today uh, on the occasion of something I'm about to show you all. Charles Rowell, who for many years was the editor of Callaloo Magazine, interviewed her. And he says, Margaret Walker Alexander, poet and novelist of Epic Scope, was born in 1915 in Birmingham, Alabama, received her bachelor's degree from Northwestern University, went to Dillard before that. M.A. and Ph.D.'s from the University of Iowa, where she submitted Jubilee, her prize winning novel as for a doctoral dissertation in 1942. 1942. She's born in 1915. So do the math. 15, 25, 35, 20. Add uh, seven years. She's 27 years old. In 1942, for my people her first published volume of poetry. I think you see where we're going with this. Deion Sanders, For My People. In 1942, For My People, her first published volume of poetry won the Yale University Younger Poets Award. Okay. And in 1966, she was given the Houghton Mifflin, I'm sorry, Houghton Mifflin, sorry, publishers, award for Jubilee. That's the novel. She ended up suing Alex Haley in Roots, story for another day. Um, Her book, How I Wrote Jubilee, Third World Press, 1972, gives, among other things, information on the research that went into the making of her historical novel. She's also published volumes of poetry, goes on. But this is where I wanna bring it. At present, Margaret Walker is the professor of English and director of the Institute for the Study of History, Life and Culture of Black People at Jackson State College, Jackson, Mississippi. See, Margaret Walker could have gone a whole lot of places. She went back to Mississippi, said, this is where I'm going to plant my institution. She spent the rest of her professional career. And she endured a lot of mess at Jackson State. You can imagine as a woman, not just black as a woman in Jack, and by black people. But she founded the Institute for the Study of History, Life, and Culture of Black People at Jackson State College. It's still there, except they don't call it that anymore. They call it the Margaret Walker Institute. I'm a little torn about that. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to honor an individual, but I like that other name. Says, and they couldn't, I guess, you could call them both. In addition to teaching and writing and speaking and reading throughout the country, she continues to organize and direct conferences on Black culture, writers' conferences, and poetry festivals at Jackson State. Ooh. Not University of Mississippi, not University of Colorado or N- NYU or Alabama, not the University of South Carolina, Jackson State. The most notable being, and here's where Elizabeth Catlett did the bust for. Her, the historical Phyllis Wheatley poetry of November, 1973. There's still a few people around who are drawing breath who were invited to that festival. I have Sonny Sanchez, asked Nikki Giovanni. Next line, Rao writes, the Phyllis Wheatley poetry festival to which 20 black women poets were invited to read is one of the most important literary festivals organized in this country. It was a tribute to Phyllis Wheatley, a celebration of the first book published by a Black woman living in America. The following interview was recorded by Telephone in Jackson and Tougaloo, Mississippi, in May 1973. And he starts with a conference they had been to at Southern University. And then she talks about her history going forward. But I'm raising that to get to this point. Uh, This book just came out. Our colleague, my friend, Mary Emma Graham, who was a student of Margaret Walker has just published this book. Miriam's book, The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker. The House Where My Soul Lives. I'll bet you one billion times out of a billion that Deion Sanders' soul will never live at the University of Colorado. His soul lives with his family and his community. He's going to take that wherever he goes. But The House Where Your Soul Lives, beyond that, bruh, you about to leave that. And guess what, that house is going to continue because it's made of bamboo. You also made of bamboo, but whereas your bamboo co-mingling with the bamboo of the institution where you are to strengthen your shoot, you about to go try to plant yours in some stony soil. Stony the road we tried, bit of the chastening rod, like the rod on the back of that brother that Will Smith is playing. Born in the days when hope unborn had died that is the distinction the trauma that engendered our need and we'll get to this in part two of our africana studies class when we ask the question framing question two one being how do we undertake the study of africana which is why we're spending our time going through these conception categories number two of the six how did africans preserve and affirm their ways of life and use their identities as means to resist enslavement and colonialism for that matter the culture we used is what allows us to do that well It's very important for us to understand that what Mary Emma Graham does here, she starts with how she met Margaret Walker. She had read her as a young person. She herself is a Southerner, Mary Emma Graham. She's a professor at the University of Kansas. Done some incredible work. Wonderful, sister. I wish that African... Uh, institutions in the United States had the resources and the capacity so that she would never have to work at a University of Kansas or any other white school. But I am realistic in the fact of two things. Number one, there is no institution in this country uh, that is called HBCU that is so different in terms of how it is organized from a white school that we can confidently say that we have met Du Bois's challenge to be a full Black institution, which is why, frankly, one of the reasons why, you know, We continue to contribute. We can work. You know, I'm committed to working in black institutions, but then we build narrative Nubia. We build spaces that are completely from the beginning through a wehemi Mesu, something torn and new. So we don't, you know, it's only so far you can go in a structure that's not going to allow you because see that structure is set up so that it's never going to relinquish power. Y'all is going to aspire to be in the whiteness. And if you don't aspire to be in rightness, then they maybe try to lure your head coach away. And if they can't do that, they just keep on till they finally introduce some kind of scandal. Or if they can't do that, they just simply create a super league with all of them and then say, you can't play in it. In other words, this is how power works. They're never going to concede. They're never going to concede this opening gamut to get uh, Sanders out of Jackson State. That's just the the first step. If that didn't work, they go to step two. If that uh, didn't work, they would go to, I don't know, maybe DEFCON. Three. or whatever they would do, they would keep going to use the military language in a way that is more appropriate rather than somebody who probably should have stayed in school. I think this is his was at Chicago State but that's a story for another day. What she writes in this massive book, and I encourage y'all, this is a book I say is worth for people to read. It's 650 pages. And she spent a lot of time with Margaret Walker. She interviewed everybody living who she could think of between Ron Bennett, all the way through who knew her well in Chicago, knew her in Iowa, knew her in Mississippi. And I'm raising this because I want to end with these two final things. Margaret Walker. Oh, man, I hope I see Mary Emma did a few things with Margaret Walker over the years. This is a, a collection that she edited with Margaret Walker called How I Wrote Jubilee. Remember this—the uh, How I Wrote Jubilee essay was published by Haki Maabooty, who was very close with Gwendolyn Brooks and Margaret Walker, himself a, po- a poet. This is uh, this this version was published by the Feminist Press in 1990, but Third World Press is where you can you really see where this was going. Um, but I want to raise this because let me see if I can find it quickly. Um, this is a book that I never keep far from. My, hold on, let me see. I can find. It. It's gonna take. Oh, here we go. Yes, this is an essay that Margaret Walker. This is the first of two things we end with, and this is a message, of course, not Deion Sanders. God bless you, brother. I wish you nothing but success. Because if and when you leave Jackson State, what you built there will endure because you've contributed to something. You didn't bring it. Okay, I say this to somebody who has went to a HBCU and works at one that special sauce from the governance of African people, the ways of knowing of African people. I'm not talking about all the stuff that they run off and try to be black faced versions of white schools. I'm talking about the things that people bring with them, like the abonics that young people bring to the classrooms, like the 60, 600 languages the children of Nigeria bring to the classrooms that the state is now realizing you need to engender that because you're beginning to put that full middle finger up against white supremacy. And if you think uh, uh, getting some ball players to go play at HBCUs is rogue. Wait till the African countries continue to be rogue because there's something that they engendered about 20 years ago called the Asmara Declaration. Uh, they were in Eritrea and this is the African Union and some language folk came together and they said, you know, we are now pushing for African languages to be taught. We're getting there. We're not there. We're not almost there, but we are moving in that direction. And the more we move in that direction, And the more we move in that direction, the more we strengthen wherever we're struggling in any particular place we are. And by the way, we didn't talk about it today. Maybe we could talk about it next week because it's gonna keep this whole California reparations commission as a long article in the New York Times and many other places now they're they're recommending, you know, 200 and some thousand dollars a piece be given to the descendants of enslaved Africans who were enslaved or have connections to enslavement in California, which is a, a remarkable step relative to what has been recommended before. The commission is recommending that. Of course then the real war starts but um I don't
0: or know like that. in providence where white folk are gonna be able to get reparate i said wait well, hold, what what hold
1: absolutely up. absolutely it, 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 white people what now yeah i mean look at the native americans we know where this is going we know where this is going which is which is my um this is where i depart with the sandy darities of the world and others who want to engender this notion of reparations in lineage in those who were enslaved in the united states i absolutely understand the arguments I embrace the intent and I wholly and fundamentally reject the approach because the approach is one that engenders separation among African people, political separation, because it is seized upon by those who have inherited some form of self-hatred that they project outward against other Africans. And and, and believe me, there are class dimensions to this. There are all types of things that are shot through, but I think that fundamental approach is just flawed for two reasons. Number one. It, it, it separates us. And that is not a way of knowing that we must continue to promote and engender. And it flies in the face of the very people you claim you're trying to have. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this next week. We certainly will talk about it next week. We won't get too deep into it. The other the only other reason I was going to say is it's going to fail. Because see, the social structure is set up. You think that you somehow have, uh, cre- you, you've kind of colored in the lines of the legal universe, the American legal universe, by choosing lineage and provable harm as a point of entry for standing over race, because race is illegal in the California state constitution to use race. That's not going to help you because all they're going to say is that you're using lineage as a proxy for race. And Erman Chemerinsky, the Dean at Berkeley law tried to tell y'all that the day he testified and I testified the day after and say, I agree with Dean Chemerinsky, but that's a story for another day. We'll talk about it next week. Margaret Walker at Jackson state, like Deion Sanders, Margaret Walker, unlike Deion Sanders, engendered in a teaching and learning tradition completely poured and anchored in the development of African minds and others, but beginning with the South where she was from, an African person whose father and mother had the house full of literature. She said, I read the I read County Cullen. My sister got a County Cullen book. I got the other book. I wanted to County Cullen, but we had to memorize those poems. Langston Hughes, who she saw at 16 years old, Richard Wright, who she was very close to. She uh, she wrote a book called Richard Wright, Demonic Genius. I mean, and Mary Emma got her chapter and verse. When I tell you this book is a joy, I've only about 40 pages in because I, you know last week of school we shutting things down but i mean i just i mean it's a celebration of the life of margaret walker and as miriam graham writes near the beginning it's like my voice and her voice are co i knew her for so long i mean it's just a beautiful thing I don't what you mean now but in this group of book of essays how i wrote jubilee there's an essay that she published margaret walker published in many shades of black and i got a copy of that somewhere around here but i didn't go look for it i didn't need to because i got this 1969 this is republished in this book. The name of the essay, Margaret Walker wrote, Jackson State College. She'd been there about a year. Yeah. Willing to pay the price. This is what Margaret Walker says down through the years, echoing in our ears on this weekend when we might hear some news out of Colorado. Margaret Walker writes, Here in the United States, success, with a capital S, is measured in materialistic terms of fame and fortune. An artist is not basically concerned with this kind of success. A creative worker dealing with the fiery lightning of imagination is interested in artistic accomplishment, and I have spent my life seeking this kind of fulfillment. As long as I live, this will be my quest. And as such, the superficial trappings of success can have no real meaning for me. I do not really care what snide remarks my conferees make, nor how searing the words of caustic critics are. Life is too short for me to concern myself with anything but the work I must do before my day is done. Mm -hmm. If there are any single factors that have blessed my life with the best, they are intelligent parents who not only fired my ambition and demanded that I set my sights high and be judged by standards of excellence, but also insisted that I seek spiritual values and crave righteousness and integrity more than money. Remarkable teachers in three of the nation's finest academic institutions and lessons learned from bitter experience and from fellow writers linked with these factors has also been an indispensable element of luck and good fortune. If you're going to go through a rites of passage with our people in a governance formation, if you've come out of our communities, then if you're going to call yourself a leader in our communities, it can't be for your individual advancement and you can't mistake your individual advancement somehow as a proxy for the rest of us. You can better any place you find yourself of in. But you're doing that because, not just because of your individual talent and ability, because of the institutions that nurtured and developed that that ability, that took you through the rites of passage, that initiated you into the space. And when you leave that space, you still have an obligation. It shifts if you move from a place like Jackson State to University of Colorado, your obligation persists and I have no doubt, given what he said and how he's acted that Coach Sanders would do that. At the same time, if you do it in an institutional formation like a Margaret Walker, that's the long game, baby. And the long game will free us. And mm-hmm. it will not only free us, it will free everybody else too. That's what they're waking into in Nigeria. That's what they're waking into. And so I'll take, if it's all right, Prof, because I know we're right up against two and a half hours. I want to end with this. I said it, I would end with those two things. 1944. Margaret Walker. I'm sorry. Duh. Hold Come that on. up. Hold that yes. up. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. This is called the Negro Caravan. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. This is actually... Probably not. <laughs> no, no, no. but it should be brought back into print because this is the book that took the baton from Elaine Locke's 1925, The New Negro, which is in print all kinds. This is the thing I love about our people. You know, a lot of whom are my friends. You go to white schools, you get two or three more dollars. It's like the, the equivalent of Deion Sanders going to Colorado. And then, out of sense of obligation, not question motive, You rediscover or bring back into print these classics and then you do them with white university presses, Oxford University Press, Harvard University Press, University of North Carolina Press, New York University Press. And is it better than not doing it? I wonder sometimes, but I'm not going to say any more because, you know. HBCU should have presses, Howard University Press, Fisk University Press, Southern University Press. We just need the collective presses, maybe an HBCU press. Uh, anyway, I'm saying more about, less about that because File was one of the journals that Margaret Walker published in. That was a journal started by Du Bois. In 1941, The Negro Caravan, a massive book of 1080 pa- 1,082 pages, actually. This book was published, edited by three titans on HBCU faculties, scholar activists, scholar writers, scholar teachers, the great Sterling Allen Brown at Howard University, Arthur P. Paul Davis, Arthur P. Davis at Virginia University, and Ulysses Lee, Lincoln University. This is a book, The Negro Caravan, that included a number of writers, anthologies, and he and he said, and they said at the beginning, several anthologies of prose and poetry by American Negro writers have preceded this one. This is 1941. All are useful to the student, but they generally represent either single types. This is James Well Johnson's book, "Pioneering Book of American Negro Poetry," 1922. Newman White and Walter Clinton Jackson's "An Anthology of American Negro Verse," 1924. Carter Woodson's Negro Orators and Their Orations, 1925, and he goes on. T- they list all the other anthologies that come before them, and they say how oh, this one is different. Well, the youngest person to be published in the poetry section, which begins with Phyllis Sweetly, by the way, the youngest person to be published in the poetry section of this book is the 26-year-old Margaret Walker, which is where we're going to end today with her famous poem, probably her most famous piece of work, For My People on page 409. That time, it is about five minutes without rushing. So let's end with this on this weekend when we realize there's a lot going on in the African world and we also realize that we all get to choose. And our choices will have more of an impact on us than they will on the institutions we choose to affiliate with because there's always more people to choose to affiliate with our institutions and continue to reinforce the we in a way that the entire funky, violence-prone world makes them shake in their boots and throw millions of dollars at you if you would just please don't do that because they know what's at stake. Let's remember. Let this ring in the ears of uh, everybody at Jackson State who stays. Margaret Walker, for my people. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people, lending their strength to the years, to the gone years and the now years and the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. For my playmates, in the clay and dust and sand of Alabama backyards, playing baptizing and preaching and doctor and jail and soldier and school and mama and cooking and playhouse and concert and store, and Miss chumbi and Hare, and company. For the cramped bewildered years, we went to school to learn to know the reasons why and the answers to and the people who and the places where and the days when in memory of the bitter hours when we discovered we were black and poor and small and different and nobody wondered and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew in spite of these things to be man and woman, to laugh and dance and sing and play and drink their wine and religion and success, to marry their playmates and bear children and then die of consumption and anemia and lynching. For my people, thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York and Rampart Street in New Orleans, lost, disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people, filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets, needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something, something all our own. For my people walking blindly, spreading joy, losing time, being lazy, sleeping when hungry, shouting when burdened, drinking when hopeless, tired and shackled and tangled among ourselves by the unseen creatures who tower over us omnisciently, and laugh. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark of churches and schools and clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions, distressed and disturbed and deceived and devoured, by money-hungry, glory-craving leeches, preyed on by the facile force of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing, staring, trying to fashion a better way. From confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the peoples, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves in their Countless generations. Finally, Margaret Walker Alexander writes, let a new earth rise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and a strength of final clinching be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control for my people. Dion, put that in your pocket, brother, because they ain't got that in Colorado. That's in Jackson, Mississippi, with Margaret Walker and her people. You understand? Oh, by the way, she, she tells Charles Rowe, when I said people always ask me, who is Miss Chumby? said, we played Miss Chumby? She said, my daddy and them taught us that Chumby was an African word. So we didn't play Miss Smith Miss Wilson, the white teacher, we played Miss Chumbi. So anytime you read for my people, understand Margaret Walker was gesturing to Africa in that in that phrase. Because her daddy told her, that's the African word.
0: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yes. A lot to digest and think about. And yeah. I just, you know, want to encourage everyone to think. Let's let's think deeply. Yes. Um, about all of the, the things that we're, we're in. Let's center our intentions on what it is that we want to accomplish individually and mm-hmm. collectively, especially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we head into this new year, this quasi season, this... this uh,
1: Christmas, Hanukkah, yeah, holiday all season. Of it,
0: all of it. The yes. new old
1: season, yeah.
0: Yes, <laughs> Let, let's remember, remember. Yes. yes. Thank you, Dr. Carl. Thank you, love Thank you. you. Love you too. Love you, Happy New See one of them Nubian streets uh, with Dr. Almond tomorrow, Monday. Oh, uh, Sam Sam Reynolds is gonna come in a Sagittarius season, so we're gonna do that astrology.
1: You know, stars together.
0: We're gonna get it together, <laughs> and then we got, of course, Metanetra on Tuesday, Wednesday yeah. yoga. We got Thursday. We're gonna may, maybe do some Mansa Musa. Uh, but uh, and then Friday, Friday, uh, you know, we're heading into to the the real holiday. So uh, love you, love, love, you. love you, love, love you all. All right. Bye, everybody. We-